I say new economic era because today's economy defies many of the core principles of traditional economic theory. We have been operating under the long-held assumption that persistent budget deficits and rising government debt would increase interest rates and inflation, harming our economy over the long run. However, contrary to these predictions, we've seen interest rates and inflation fall to record, low, record lows, <clears throat> while debt has soared to its highest level since just after World War II. We are truly in a new era that has economists reassessing entire economic theories in light of these unexpected outcomes. If the Budget Committee is to promote effective and responsible fiscal policy, it's important that we learn more and participate in this growing debate. In our hearing last week, Federal Reserve Chair Powell made it clear that the fiscal challenge we face is a long-term one, not an immediate crisis. Our aging population and growing health care costs have put our debt on an unsustainable path. We will need to take steps to address this issue over the next several decades. But in the meantime, persistently low interest rates have made reducing deficits in the near term less urgent, even counterproductive given the risk to economic growth. It has also increased Congress's fiscal space, empowering lawmakers to make responsible investments now, now that will improve our future economic outlook. But that doesn't mean we should be spending like a drunken sailor without thought or discretion. I apologize to any current or former sailors in the room. Deficits and what they're used for matter. Failing to tackle severe and persistent infrastructure, education, and health gaps is arguably more damaging to our economic and fiscal outlooks than the risk posed today by higher debt. Policies that support working Americans in an economic downturn provide much needed investments in our families, communities, and environment, and have a positive impact on our long-term fiscal health, our responsible uses of deficits. Every dollar invested in infrastructure increases near-term economic output by $1.50 and boosts our, economic, our economy's productivity over time. A dollar for pre-disaster mitigation efforts saves $6 in future disaster costs. Investments in children's health care and preschool and college attainment pay for themselves over the long run. Housing programs that move children out of poverty can increase lifetime earnings by $300,000. Moreover, low interest rates will supercharge these investments. They'll be cheaper to make today and likely provide a bigger boost to the economy later. On the other hand, deficit finance tax cuts for the wealthy and big corporations are clearly an irresponsible use of deficits. The Republicans' 2017 tax law is the poster child for wasteful deficit finance policy. It has failed to provide any meaningful boost to the economy, but increased our debt by at least 1.9 trillion and counting, worsening our already serious revenue problem. Skyrocketing the deficit for this purpose, while uninsured rates increase, air pollution worsens, and our children's reading scores decline is appalling. At the end of the day, carrying debt still carries risks, but by investing strategically in responsible policies that reflect our nation's values, and by having a more sober and evidence-based understanding of the costs of debt, we can lay the groundwork for a productive and dynamic 21st century economy. I know we will hear different points of view as we examine this, which is the point of this hearing. But despite critical differences, both mainstream and alternative schools of thought increasingly agree that government debt appears to be less risky, less costly, and less urgent than traditional economic thought suggests. Today's hearing will provide a platform for experts and policymakers to share their ideas 
whether practical or aspirational, conventional or controversial. Once again, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses about what they believe Congress can and should be doing in this new economic era, how we can invest responsibly in our future, and what fiscal policies best support American families. With that, I yield five minutes to the ranking member, Mr. Womack. I thank the chairman uh, for holding this hearing. I think it's an appropriate continuation of the conversation we began last week with uh, the Federal Reserve chairman. Uh, last week, I likened Chairman Powell's assessment of the economy to a checkup with your doctor. We received an encouraging bill of health. Our economy is strong. Forward momentum continues thanks to the pro-growth policies enacted last Congress and under this administration. Americans are confident, and rightly so. We should certainly celebrate this historic economic prosperity, but cannot ignore the fact that we continue to face serious long-term fiscal challenges, particularly the ever-increasing federal debt. Simply put, the debt is on a completely unsustainable trajectory. The national debt is $23-plus trillion and is projected to grow more to more than $34 trillion within a decade. Soon thereafter, on our current path, the federal debt will reach the highest level in American history as a percentage of our economy. CBO also projects that by 2049, the federal debt will equal $248,000 per American, almost a million dollars for each family of four. After that, it continues to grow. Interest payments will increasingly crowd out the other federal spending that is directed toward programs many Americans rely on. CBO projects interest payments on the debt will amount to $390 billion in fiscal 20, an 11% uh, amount of our federal tax revenue. Mr. Chairman, you, uh, your hearing title provocatively asks us to re-examine the debt, and I suspect we will hear from some voices today that suggest we should not worry too much about it, or we will hear it's wrong, the wrong time to deal with it. Allow me to underscore just how irresponsible that thought process is. The way our government is operating is the same as an American family trying to make difficult financial decisions about mortgages, health insurance, and bills when they must first direct a significant portion of their family budget just toward paying the interest on a growing credit card balance. We call that the minimum payment due. Not only is this the way we're doing business, fiscally irresponsible and unsustainable, CBO also found that a growing federal debt has a negative impact on business investment, productivity, and economic growth. It simply does not make sense to champion our present economic successes while ignoring the long-term challenge that is the debt. I hope we can have a realistic discussion today about the scenarios that are in front of us in the future. We could do nothing. We could try not to make things worse. We could spend even more and add new mandatory spending programs like we did yesterday on the CR, as many in this institution are proposing. Or we could work together and address the debt. What happens to the economy and the financial future of our children and grandchildren under each of these scenarios? I certainly don't want to uh, want my grandkids to see the crisis scenario in which the interest rate on the debt will skyrocket abruptly because investors will no longer have confidence in our government's ability to pay its bills. That's why I'm seriously concerned that it seems today as though many lawmakers have shifted from a willingness to address the debt with real bipartisan solutions and instead are buying into this modern monetary theory, which tells us that the debt doesn't matter because we can essentially just print more money. This notion is absurd. We cannot simply wish our problems away. Last week before this very committee, Chairman Powell made the point himself that when he said the idea that the debt doesn't matter is simply wrong. 
Yet our colleagues serving in the House use this theory to justify the cost of programs like the Green New Deal. So at this point, I cannot help but wonder how many neutral outside experts Congress needs to hear from before we wake up and act. Congress must come together in a bipartisan, bicameral fashion to reduce the debt, deliver on our Article I responsibilities, and make good on our responsibility to the American people who have to balance their own budgets each month. Finally, I'd like to congratulate my friend Mr. Burchett from Tennessee, the former mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, and Mr. Case from Hawaii for working together to introduce a new bipartisan idea to address the national debt. I'm often asked at home, when are you guys going to get together and do something instead of fighting with each other? H.R. 5178 suggests creative approaches for how Congress could look at the debt in a bipartisan way involving the House and the Senate. I'm proud to support the bill authored by my friend, the mayor from Knox County, and his uh, Democrat co-sponsor, Mr. Case. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yield back the balance of my time and I look forward to the Q&A. I thank the ranking member <clears throat> for his opening statement. Uh, in the interest of time, if any other member has an opening statement, you may submit those statements in writing for the record. Uh, once again, I want to thank our witnesses for being here this morning. The committee has received your written statements, and they will be made part of the formal hearing record. You each will have five minutes to give your oral remarks. Uh, Dr. Blanchard, uh, you may begin with your ready. You know that in Arkansas and Kentucky, you'd be Blanchard. And I don't, know, I don't know how many people on the committee will butcher your name, so I apologize in advance for that. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you. I've accepted the fact that I'm called Blanchard. The, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, members of the committee, thank you very much uh, for giving me the opportunity to testify on what I think is really a, indeed a, a crucial uh, topic. In my testimony today, I would like to make five points. The first. Nominal and real interest rates are likely to remain low for a long time to come. Indeed, nominal interest rates are forecast to be lower than the growth rate of nominal GDP uh, for the next 20 years. Now, this being said, it is not an absolute certainty, and one should indeed be ready to act if the circumstances changed. That was the first point. The second point is that, as a matter of logic, uh, low real rates have three implications for fiscal policy. Fiscal costs are lower. Uh, the cost of debt, inflation adjusted, is currently negative, slightly negative, more or less zero. Primary deficits, which are the deficits not including interest payments on the debt, must be offset by primary surpluses in the future, but smaller primary surpluses, in other ways, Lower taxes today require smaller increases in taxes in the future, just again as a matter of arithmetic. Fiscal risks uh, are also smaller. The probability that there is a market-induced debt crisis in the U.S. reflecting the inability of the government to pay its bills is smaller or more or less non-existent for the moment. So this is implications of low rates for fiscal Policy. My third point is about implications of low rates for monetary policy, and we're all familiar with what these implications are. The low nominal rates put sharp limits on the use of monetary policy, and the most that the Federal Reserve can do is to, st to stimulate the economy is to decrease nominal interest rates to zero or very close to zero. Once at the lower bound, monetary policy cannot help. But 
fiscal policy can. That's, I think, a very central point. Fourth, as a result of my first three points, uh, the implication is lower on, on the one hand, lower fiscal cost and higher potential benefits imply a larger role for fiscal policy as a macro stabilization tool. Put another way, the trade-off between debt stabilization and output stabilization has shifted as a result of low rates in the direction of output stabilization. We should be relatively more concerned about output stabilization than debt stabilization. My fifth point is to try to translate these general principles into concrete uh, conclusions about US fiscal policy. And here I see two main implications. First, the deficits are running at uh, a bit above 5% of GDP at this point, and they are very large. So unless they are used to finance an ambitious and credible public investment plan, or ambitious capital spending at various margin, they should be decreased. Decreasing them too fast, however, would be risky because it, they might well reduce demand and there is little room for the Fed to have set this decrease in demand through low interest rates. Therefore, the reduction in the deficit, which is highly desirable, should be contingent on the strength of private demand. This strategy might lead to further increases in the ratio of debt to GDP from the already fairly high levels, but I believe that it is an acceptable risk that maintaining output is very, very important. The second and final conclusion is that if a recession materialized, monetary policy would be likely constrained. There is very little room of maneuver, making it essential to use fiscal policy. Automatic stabilizers, which is a fiscal instrument which has been used in the past, are too weak in the US to do the job. Better ones, focusing, for example, on larger payments to low-income households should be designed soon. This is an urgent matter. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. And uh, now, Dr. Randall Ray, you have five minutes. Okay, thank you for the opportunity to speak here. In my statement, I argue that federal deficits and debt are not so scary. Neither is on an unsustainable path. Rather, persistent deficits and rising debt are normal. They're not due to out-of-control spending, now or in the future. They serve a useful public purpose. They're largely outside the control of Congress. And it's hard to imagine a scenario in which they create a financial crisis, lead to insolvency or high inflation, or trigger an attack by bond vigilantes. I want to focus on um, two graphs to back up these claims. And I don't know if these can be shown. OK, there we go. Figure one shows sectoral balances. In the aggregate, spending equals income. One sec sector can run a surplus only if at least one other runs a deficit. The government sector is in red in this graph. And except for the Clinton years, it is always in deficit below the line. The private sector is blue, including firms and households. It's almost always in surplus, except for the decade after 1996, when the private sector spent more than its income. The foreign sector is green and in surplus since the Reagan years. That's because we run a current account deficit reflected in our trade deficit. So the usual case is the government's deficit equals the sum of the private sector surplus and the foreign surplus against us. This is an identity. You can't change one without changing at least one other balance. 
Those wanting to eliminate deficits have to tell us which of the other two balances will change to allow that to happen. Will they put the private sector in deficit? That's what happened in the dot-com and housing bubbles leading to the global financial crisis. Or will get foreigners run trade deficits? How? We've had a current account deficit for 40 years. Understanding sectoral balances shows why the federal balance is not under control of Congress as it depends on the other two sectors. Finally, let's address the bond vigilantes and projections of exploding interest payments on the debt. Figure 11 shows debt service is driven by interest rates, not by the debt ratio. And interest rates are determined by monetary policy, not by the debt ratio, nor by bond vigilantes. So what do I recommend going forward? I actually agree with a lot of the comments made. We don't need tax hikes or spending constraint now, when growth seems to be moderating and there's no inflationary pressure. Indeed, doing that now might depress growth so that the deficit would actually increase, as it always does in recession. The time to rein in the deficit will be when growth booms and inflation threatens. I'm not saying all deficits are good and created equal. I prefer well-targeted taxes and spending. The recent tax cuts were inefficient because the main beneficiaries were high-income earners. This raised the deficit without boosting growth. It makes sense to shift taxes away from low to moderate incomes and onto high income and wealth. That raises consumption and encourages investment. Spending should be targeted to job creation and productivity increases. I don't take long-term projections very seriously. I remember when President Clinton projected budget surpluses for 15 years, retiring all the debt. The dot-com crash wiped out the surplus, and we've had deficits ever since. We at the Levy Institute warned in 1997 that that would happen. Current CBO projections have the debt ratio rising continuously. This is based on the twin erroneous assumptions that debt raises interest rates and lowers investment and growth through crowding out. That ignores positive impacts of deficits on the private sector surpluses. This doesn't crowd out spending, but increases net wealth and encourages growth. Instead of worrying about long-term projections that will be wrong, we should focus on formulating good policy today. So I suggest three recommendations. First, strengthen the automatic stabilizers. Spending should be more counter-cyclical, while taxes should be pro-cyclical. Policy changes weakened them over the past decades. Second, if discretionary policy is possible, raise taxes or cut spending only when the economy is overheating. There's no point adopting austerity today, only because the deficit might be bigger in the distant future. And finally, increase efficiency of both spending and taxing. The goal should be sustainable growth, rising living standards, reduction of inequality, and not to achieve some arbitrary deficit or debt number. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. And now recognize Dr. Bernstein for five minutes. Chairman Yarmouth, Ranking Member Womack, I thank you for the chance to speak to this evolving area where economics intersects public finance. My testimony starts by noting that current deficits are unusually high for this stage of the economic recovery, and yet these deficits are not pushing up interest rates or inflation. If the increased flow of deficits and the resulting higher stock of debt are not having obvious negative economic consequences, does that mean deficits don't matter and policymakers should blithely put all of their preferences on the national credit card? My answer is no. The evidence does not relieve policymakers of budget constraints. It does not negate the revenue-robbing impact of the 2017 tax cuts that, in my framing, are Exhibit A in wasteful, inequitable debt accumulation. 
But the evidence provides a more nuanced, far less cramped understanding of the economic costs of budget deficits and the potential benefits from investing in people in places who have long needed the help. The coexistence of high deficits and debt amid low interest rates belies the traditional crowd-out arguments where public and private borrowing compete over a fixed lump of capital. In fact, our economy is large and open with deep, liquid global credit markets, and our debt is considered among the world's safest to invest excess savings. The central bank is also in the mix. The Fed has kept its benchmark interest rate below 1% for most of the past decade and convinced investors that inflation would remain low and stable. Other evidence suggests that deficits are not leading to faster inflation and higher rates because the U.S. economy has not been operating at full capacity. For either public or private spending to generate overheating conditions, aggregate demand must exceed supply such that any extra demand, say for more deficit spending, would generate not more jobs and higher real incomes, but just more inflation. Priors in this area of economics also require updating, most notably regarding the lowest unemployment rate thought to be consistent with stable prices. Thus, it is a serious mistake to assume that deficits will pressure interest rates, especially when there's economic slack, strong capital flows, excess savings over investment, and well-anchored inflation. Moreover, with the economy's growth rate outpacing the relevant interest rate, the fiscal cost of debt stabilization is diminished. These facts should push, push strongly against knee-jerk, austere fiscal policy. But they should not obviate concerns about our persistent fiscal imbalances. First, interest rates could eventually rise that we'd be serve, and such that we'd be servicing a much larger stock of debt, thus devoting a larger share of national income to debt payments. Prudent risk management does not assign a zero probability to higher future rates. Second, financing more of our public debt with foreign capital has led to an increasing share of our GDP leaking out through debt payments abroad. Back in 1970, public debt held by foreigners amounted to less than 2% of GDP. Most recently, that share was 30%. Third, and this is the concern that I find most worrisome, is the lack of, quote, perceived versus actual fiscal space. When the next recession hits, the Federal Reserve will reduce the cost of credit, but because interest rates have been so low, the Fed is likely to have reduced monetary space, less room to lower their benchmark interest rate. Countercyclical fiscal policy does not face an analogous limit. However, were Congress to take insufficient action to offset a downturn, it would be a fateful mistake, one that would disproportionately harm those who are already economically vulnerable and who are at least and who are least insulated from recessions. In closing, our evolving understanding of the role of fiscal debt provides us with both opportunities and risks. The former implies more leeway to use deficit spending to make necessary productive investments. The latter means avoiding adding to our already historically elevated debt for non-productive or wasteful spending and or tax cuts. It is thus essential to divine good debt from bad debt. Good debt invests in people and places that need the help bad debt does not. Considering the set of unmet needs we observe in communities across the country, along with the threat from climate change, there exists a deep, rich set of good debt investment opportunities. Tens of millions remain un- or underinsured in terms of health coverage. The impact of climate change is already being felt in volatile and costly weather patterns. The cost of colleges is a constraint to many families of moderate means. Much of our public infrastructure needs upgrading. Long-term wage stagnation has constrained the living standards of many working households. And there are significant swaths of people and places that have been left out of the current expansion. 
I'm happy to elaborate on what I believe are good debt opportunities in those spaces uh, during our uh, future uh, discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your testimony. And now, finally, Dr. Uh, John T Taylor, you have five minutes. Uh, thank you for inviting me to testify on this important topic, re-examining the economic costs of debt. The previous hearings of this committee, at which I testified, including, 19, including a 2015 meeting, uh, was titled, Why Congress Must Balance the Budget. In that hearing, I showed that basic economic theory, grounded in real-world data, implies that high federal government debt has a cost. It reduces real GDP and real income per household compared to what these would be with lower debt levels. A re-examination of the economic costs conducted for this hearing yields the same results. In work with John Kogan, Volker Wieland, and myself, we used modern economic models to estimate the effect of a decline in federal expenditures as a share of GDP. This fiscal consolidation plan led to an immediate and permanent increase in real GDP, according to the model calculations. Similar fiscal consolidation strategies were simulated in later years. Recently, the Congressional Budget Office reported similar results. They compared their extended baseline, in which the debt goes to 144% of GDP, with an extended alternative fiscal scenario, in which the federal debt goes up to 219% of GDP. This alternative scenario has the total deficit rising to 15.5% compared with 8.7% in their extended baseline. The CBO also finds that real GDP is 3.6% lower when the debt is higher. So clearly, according to these analyses, the higher debt has real economic costs. The CBO also analyzed scenarios in which the debt is lower as a share of GDP, 42% and 78%. In the 42% scenario, real GDP would be 5.8% higher. In the 78% scenario, real GDP would be 3.7% higher. With the Congressional Budget Office's currently projected increase in the deficit and the federal debt in the United States, this reexamination implies the need for a credible fiscal consolidation strategy. Under such a strategy, spending still grows, but at a slower rate than GDP, at least for a while, thereby reducing both spending as a share of GDP and the debt as a share of GDP compared with current projections. Such a fiscal strategy would greatly benefit the American economy. It would also reduce the risk of the debt spiraling up much faster than is currently projected by the CBO. I believe these conclusions are robust to different ways of thinking about the world. Professor Blanchard has emphasized that if the growth rate of the economy is greater than the relevant interest rate in the public debt, then there will be a tendency for the debt-to-GDP ratio to, to decline over time. In many of the simulations reported by Professor Blanchard, the primary deficit is held to zero. However, any projection at this point has the primary deficit far, far above zero, and according to Congressional Budget Office, it's growing over time. Moreover, the economic costs reported here do not distinguish between the primary and the total deficit. 
It is the increase in the debt via the total deficit that creates economic costs. Of course, different views of the relative size of the growth rate and the interest rate are important, but they do not diminish the estimated costs of high debt. Another view of the economic costs of debt is related to what is sometimes called modern monetary theory. It's difficult to determine how this approach would work in the future, and it is frequently associated with large spending programs and even wage and price controls. Model simulations would, would be useful, to be sure, but history can also be a valuable guide. In the 1970s, the United States imposed wage and price controls, and the Federal Reserve helped finance the deficit by creating money. The result was a terrible economy, with unemployment and inflation both rising. This ended when money growth was reduced in the late 70s and early 80s. As explained in a new book by George Schultz and myself, it is an example where poor economic reasoning led to poor economic policy, which led to poor economic performance. It was only reversed when good economics again prevailed and policy changed. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your testimony, and once again, thanks to all the witnesses. Uh, we will now begin our question and answer session. As a reminder, members can submit written questions to be answered later in writing. <clears throat> Those questions and the answers uh, from our witnesses will be made part of the formal hearing record. Any members who wish to submit questions for the record may do so within seven days. Um, the ranking member and I will defer our questions until the end. Uh, so I now yield five minutes to the gentleman from New York, Mr. Morelli. Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Chairman, for holding uh, such an important hearing. <clears throat> I feel a little bit like being at a panel where I've just listened to the four leading cosmologists in the world talk about string theory, multiverses, black holes, the origin of the universe. And my first question is like, how does gravity work? <laughs> um, so I apologize because this was... Um, a lot to process, but I did want to um, just uh, go back to, and I think uh, perhaps uh, uh, Dr. Bernstein, you, you touched on this as maybe you all did to some degree, but textbook economic theory, as I understand it, predicts that persistent budget deficits and rising government debt essentially raises interest rates, fuels inflation, crowds out, as you talked about, or depresses private investment and triggers financial uh, and fiscal difficulties. We're obviously not seeing that. Um, the publicly held debt, I think, in the United States is roughly 80% of GDP. Uh, it has actually grown, which I think is unusual to grow as a percentage of GDP during an economic expansion, uh, which we've seen over the last 10 or 11 years. Um, the 10-year note is uh, at lower interest rates than it was 20 years ago. So since that was the sort of expectations and it hasn't played out, is it that the the assumptions that we made are incorrect, or are we in sort of a unique period or the circumstance of change where no longer those expected results uh, are present? What, and what's the lesson that we as policymakers should take from that? I think it's more accurate to say uh, that the assumptions were right at one point in time and they no longer are. So in my testimony, I show a scatter plot between budget deficits and interest rates. And actually, if you go back a few decades, that lines up pretty negatively, much like uh, the theory uh, would predict. And by the way, you comprehended everything that we were talking about perfectly well. So just being clear that uh, you're, you're, we're on the same page here. Um, uh, but uh, as, I, as I stressed in my, in my testimony, uh, 
dynamics, uh, global credit, the role of the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, anchored inflationary expectations, um, excess savings over global investment, all of those have contributed to fundamentally change the relationship such that the crowd-out hypothesis uh, simply doesn't bind uh, in the data. Now, I try to be very clear in my testimony that that doesn't mean that interest rates won't go up and create a serious uh, problem for us. I, I, think the, uh, I think the way I put it was that um, you know, it's not good risk management to assume uh, you know, a, a zero threat from that possibility. But it's really that the old assumptions no longer hold. I, I'd like to um, just shift. Last week, we had uh, a, a, the Fed Chair, uh, Chairman Powell, is here, talked about debt level sustainability. And I just want to read what he said. I would define sustainable as the debt is not growing faster than the economy. Our debt is growing faster than our economy now by a margin. And so by definition, it makes it unsustainable. You have to have an economy that is going faster than your debt, uh, and you have to do that for 10 to 20 years. That's how you successfully handle this. If you don't do it, over time, you'll be crowding out private investment. Um, I'm just curious, Dr. Bernstein, as a follow-up, would you agree with that, or do you think, would you dissent from that view? I would broadly dissent in the spirit that I just uh, showed you. I think it's really an empirical question. However, John Taylor makes a, a fair point when he says that, you know, yes, it's true that growth rates uh, surpass interest rates, but because the primary deficit or the deficit net of interest payments has been uh, uh, large and growing, that is putting upward pressure on the debt. I don't think that means that crowd out is around the corner, or at least uh, in, in, in any perspective that I can see. I think what it does mean is that to the extent that we do um, uh, engage in, in deficit spending, it should be on the kinds of productive, I put it under the rubric of good debt. Yeah, and I, I, I did, I wanted to ask a question on uh, the uh, something else, but it, uh, the automatic stabilizers, and perhaps someone else will ask about that. But while you're on the subject, could you just define perhaps a couple of examples of bad debt? You mentioned some of good. I think the most... Uh, uh, I think the, the Exhibit A is, is really uh, in a, a debt that comes from uh, tax cuts, and particularly tax cuts that are, are regressive, that is, that return far more benefits to those at the top of the wealth scale. To me, that's a classic example of both inequitable, revenue-robbing, bad debt. Very good. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll yield back. Gentleman yields back. I now recognize the gentleman from Missouri, Mr. Smith, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As of today, it's uh, been 219 days since the deadline has passed for us to propose a budget in this committee. While this committee might not realize, might not realize it, there is uh, several reasons why we go through the budget process. One, it gives guidelines to the appropriators. Two, um, in a budget resolution, we also set the 302A number allocations. Um, which is, establishes the overall spending numbers. Yesterday on the floor, we saw a continuing resolution passed again, yet we still don't have the 302A numbers. Um, I'm glad that this committee hearing at least is moving more towards a, a, a hearing that a budget committee would have when you're talking about the national debt. So I think that at least that's a step in the right direction even though we're 219 days behind Earlier this, um, I, I just want to make a comment in regards to what some of the witnesses had said earlier about good debt um, investing in people. 
uh, Mr. Bernstein made that, that statement. Um, I think a lot of times folks up here in the swamp get confused and they think of government funded, government spending, but it's not government funded, it's not government spending, it's not government debt, it's taxpayer spending, taxpayer funded, and taxpayer debt. So when we talk about debt, it's not government debt, it's taxpayer debt. It's every one of the 320 plus million Americans that have the debt. And let's not get blinded by a different entity by saying government, because it all has to be paid for someday, and it's all the citizens of this country. It's the taxpayers. So remember the difference between government debt and taxpayer debt. It is taxpayer debt. Um, I know the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was brought up a couple times. Um, I represent a congressional district that is one of the poorest in the nation. And I can tell you under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act where our median household income of a family of four is just right at $40,000 a year, the people of my district benefited greatly from the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And a family of four with a median income household of 40,000 is not a lot. It is in the lowest bracket of median household incomes in the nation of 435 congressional districts. And I can tell you by traveling the 30 counties of Southeast and South Central Missouri, how people have benefited from the Tax Cut and Jobs Act by the doubling of the standard deduction, by the doubling of the child tax credit. These were real numbers that helped drive the economy in a very rural, impoverished economy. So I do know that there was huge benefits and there wasn't any robbing of the poor people in Southeast Missouri. In fact, they benefited from the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, at least the people that I represent in the 30 counties that call 20,000 square miles home in Southeast Missouri. Um, you know, the Boot Hill of Missouri used to be a swamp, by the way, and we drained it. And now it's some of the most fertile land in the country, and I think that's what President Trump's trying to do up here in Washington, D.C., and let's hope that it's, it's working. Mr. Taylor, I have a question for you. Um, CBO reports that an increasing public debt harms per capita gross national product, whereas reducing the debt improves per capita gross national product. Given the negative consequences of our nation's current fiscal path, if we were to actually legislate and put the federal budget on a sustainable course, what would be the positive economic effects? I believe if the um, plan, if you like, the credible consolidation plan, budget deficit reduction plan, uh, was somehow passed or agreed to, it's multi-year, it'd be best to be sure, so it's credible, I think it would have a beneficial effect on the economy. So often the models that uh, people use emphasize any reduction in government spending of any kind is contractionary. I don't believe that's the case. If it's credible, if it's understood, if it's planned, it's been beneficial. And that's what our models show, that's what our simulations show. I think it would be a benefit to have, a, and people have talked about this in the past, a strategy to reduce the debt to GDP over time. And it would be beneficial according to the models that I use and I think other people have used. So I would, I would very much hope that that would be the direction. I know it's not what you're focused on right now, but I wish there was more focus on that. Multi-year discussion, what's gonna happen if you look at the expenditure growth, it's, it's, it's astounding what's happened, what's being projected. So I think that needs to be fixed. 
I see my time expired, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, thank you. Gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Nevada, Mr. Horsford, for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Yarmouth, and to the ranking member. I know we're here today to re-examine uh, how we view debt and deficits with respect to our economy. And uh, my good friend, Mr. Smith from Missouri, he and I serve on the Ways and Means Committee as well. We've had some good, lively debate uh, in both this committee and our other committee. Uh, but what I find interesting sometimes is that the other side will view tax cuts for the very wealthy as investments. But when we talk about investing in uh, resources and programs that we know will benefit our children and their future, somehow that's not something that's worth investing in. So I want to go directly to the numbers that impact my constituents. Mr. Smith talked about his. During the 2017-2018 school year, Nevada, which has 355 Title I schools, over 200,000 children in those schools, Clark County is the fifth largest school district in the country. Nearly half of the students are Latino students, limited English proficient students, had we received the full allocation of funding, we would have been budgeted $379 million in Title I funding from the federal government. However, our schools received only $130 million. That's $250 million funding deficit for our students that need it the most. And I've been to these schools. I've seen what these teachers are dealing with with overcrowded classrooms, with inadequate textbooks, with not having the um, after-school resources, early, early childhood investments that we know will improve the educational outcomes of young people and improve their quality of life. Let me give you another example to turn to the chart. We've seen cuts to various skills training programs such as the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act and the Perkins Career and Technical Education Act as well as adult education. As you can see from this chart, WIOA was funded at $4.6 billion in fiscal year 2001. These are programs to train people for the 21st skills of the future, but it only received $2.8 billion in funding for fiscal year 2019. So, Mr. Bernstein and Dr. Bacard, do you think the long-term economic and fiscal consequences of neglecting investments in critical areas such as education and skills training could be more damaging than the consequences of increasing our debt? I'll start. I, mean, uh, I do worry about precisely that, and this is a good example of what I'm talking about when I say good investment uh, uh, in, in terms of, uh, of deficit spending versus, versus wasteful, uh, inequitable spending. And it's important to just broaden out your comments slightly. I'll get out of the way so uh, Olivia can jump in. One force that's clearly not driving the debt ratio forecast that we've all been talking about is precisely this kind of spending. So this is non-defense discretionary spending. It's expected to fall to historical lows as a share of GDP. It's precisely the area where we should be investing is where we're doing the least. Dr. Bouchard, Picard. I very much agree. Uh, I think the deficits as they are now uh, are not used for the right purposes. There's a number of uh, programs, uh, measures which could increase, growth, decrease inequality, 
it would be a much better use of these deficits than is currently the case. Thank you. So I just want to note, Mr. Chairman, uh, that the President and my Republican colleagues, again, passed a $1.9 trillion tax cut. Uh, and they did so in 51 days without one hearing. They rammed through that job tax cut bill. That $1.9 trillion my Republican colleagues in the Trump administration passed, that benefited only the top 1%. That could have been used to fully fund Title I in my state. It could have been to invest in some of these programs that we know people need in order to compete for American jobs. We're talking about getting ready to work on USMCA. Trade is important, but guess what? We also have to invest in our workers in order to have the skills to compete. So when we talk about competition in a global economy, it's trade, it's skills in our workforce, and it's having a competitive tax rate. My colleagues focused on only one of those areas. They did it in 51 days, and they did it without regard to the majority of the American people who would benefit the most. I yield back. The gentleman's time has expired, and I'm, I unfortunately neglected to, while Mr. Smith was still in the room, to correct one thing he said for the record, and he may have misspoken. But uh, there, we do have 302A uh, numbers for next year. We don't have 302B yet. We're working on that. But anyway, I just wanted to correct that for the record. Uh, and now I recognize the gentleman from South Carolina, Mr. Norman, for five minutes. Thank you so much. Uh, thank for each of you for being here. Uh, let me just reemphasize what Mr. Congressman Smith said. You know, when you say government debt, that's, that is taxpayers' debt. This thing we call government is made up of taxpayers. They're the ones who uh, put the money in the coffers uh, to make government work. It's, so that's not some uh, term that's, I think it's misunderstood or misused by the left. Uh, secondly, I've heard several talk about tax cuts for the rich, tax cut for those at the top. Where did the bonuses come that President Trump, that we passed, that President Trump has uh, put into practice? Where did the bonuses go? It went to people, people that, that, that make, up the gov make up the corporations. So uh, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we, we talk about this, the thing government in, in terms as if it's not people. We talk about corporations, the rich. I think the people who have benefited the most are those that have a job now. Uh, I think the growth rates under the, the President Trump are real, as opposed to the ob obvious low growth rates under the previous administration, which hovered over 1.2, 1.5%. There is a reason people have jobs. There is a reason the growth has occurred in this economy uh, like never before. Um, uh, Mr. Ray, let me ask you, have you ever run a private business? Uh, no. Okay, so you've never had to hire, uh, make a payroll, uh, balance of, I guess other than your, your, your household budget, you never had to balance, make a product or um, use, uh, make sure things, you, you're making a profit so that you can pay the police, you can pay our schools, you can pay our first responders. You've never done that. Uh, that's correct. Okay. Let me ask you about the modern monetary theory, which I think you buy into. Um, and I think the basis of that, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, budget deficits can be financed by nations who control the currency. Yes. Okay. 
Are you familiar with the monetary policy of some Latin American economies, Chile? Uh, some Latin American countries, yes. Okay. What about uh, Peru? Uh, not Peru, no. Okay. Um, are you familiar with uh, some of the uh, inflation rates? And I mentioned Chile. You, do you remember what that is, the inflation rate in Chile? No. It's 500%. Do you remember the inflation rate in Peru by just printing money? 7,000%. What about Venezuela? How has that worked out? Uh, that was 10,398%. So hyperinflation hurts the little man that you're talking about you protect. Um, you know, in Venezuela today, we're witnessing the effects of a socialism, a socialistic economy that doesn't work for the people that you say you protect. Um, those are the consequences of the very monetary policy that you say you promote. Um, and I guess, let me ask each, each one of you, uh, I've got a minute 31, as you look at priorities uh, in this country that we spend on, is, does the Green New Deal add up as the top priority? And I'd start with, well, Mr. Ray, let me start with you. Uh, I do think that we face a very serious challenge that uh, will require federal government involvement and federal government spending. What would it cost? Uh, it depends on what you include in the Green New Deal. Say, pick, a, pick a number. Okay. Well, a, a com say the complete package of greening programs could be as much as 5% of GDP for the next 10 years. Which is, give me a number. Just pick, pick a number, because I've, I've heard okay. uh, 73 trillion, I've heard... Uh, no. Not that. No. But it's top, top of the list. Over national defense, over... Uh, I, I don't think that we have to make a choice like that. Okay. If we're talking about adding 5% of GDP to total spending, uh, we don't have to eliminate uh, defense. That, that would bring government spending up to about 25% of GDP. Okay. Mr. Taylor. I think the highest priority is to have a faster growing economy, which benefits large parts of this economy, and as you've emphasized. Which is what the tax cuts have done. That's, I, that's I a, agree. It's, they have been effective. Right. That's, I'm out of time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Do the, do the other two witnesses want to respond to the question? Dr. Blanchard. Green New Deal is indeed a, a priority. Is it the top priority? There are many other things which need to be repaired in this country, from bridges to uh, uh, other infrastructure. Uh, should it be financed by debt or by taxes? I think the answer is by a mix of the two. The only thing I'll add is when you're contemplating the cost of the Green New Deal or any other action against climate change, it's very important to factor in the costs of not doing anything about climate change. Those costs are becoming increasingly significant, and they must be netted out of whatever numbers we're throwing around. Thank you. Gentlemen's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Cooper, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I welcome such a distinguished panel of economists. I appreciate your patience, because you must know when you come, there will be a lot of partisan sparring. Um, I must admit, I actually watched the YouTube video of Mr. Blanchard's um, address when I saw the headline that 
He's apparently said, according to the press, that deficits don't matter. I had to see for myself what, in fact, you had said. And I regret the distortions that were made of your what AEA speech that prompted some journalists to mischaracterize it. I worry, in general, that the nuance that's in all of your testimony largely escapes uh, members. So I worry that you end up looking like pinatas <laughs> hit by whatever is the opposing side each time, because as we well know, uh, when the other side's in the majority, there'll be three John Taylors on the panel <laughs> instead of the only one we have today. Uh, I'm not suggesting you be cloned, but... Uh, <laughs> um, the real issue is whether we can get at the truth. And perhaps a no hearing this year is going to be more important in helping us ferret out the truth. Because as we deal with short-term, medium-term, long-term trade-offs, I worry that there's a certain learned behavior here when we refuse to acknowledge nuance, when we refuse to try to get things right and look beyond the horizon, that we could be committing grave errors today. And literally none of us really has skin in the game because the average congressional tenure is six to eight years, we'll be gone. Some of you have tenure, you know, <laughs> but even with that, you'll be gone. So our real obligation is to our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And it really matters, even though some of these issues are measured in small percentage points, whether we get it right, because the difference between 1% growth, 3% growth, 5% growth is monumental. I worry that on behalf of your profession, there's not sufficient humility, because my guess is that none of you correctly predicted the 08 recession, because hardly anyone did. Those who claim they did sometimes exaggerate their foresight. But I think John Maynard Keynes said that all economists should be humble like dentists. And I'm not seeing, you know, from the profession a, a dentist type humility um, or, a dent, or an ability because at least dentists have to talk to their patients and try to make sure the patient understands. Brush your teeth every day, otherwise you'll have cavities. So if you could help me understand, because to me, there's more commonality in the testimony than would appear on the surface, and yet you're being separated three to one as if, you know, one side's good, one side's bad, and Dr. Bernstein even characterizes good debt, bad debt. That's a pretty Manichaean view <laughs> of the world. Um, um, you know, it all depends on what your favorite programs are, and both parties end up having similar sins. We both love spending if it's our sort of spending. We both decry debt if it's not our sort of debt. So I'm worried we're really talking past each other here. So would any of you admit that there's really more commonality than first appears? I mean, I, I, first of all, let me just say that uh, embedded in my testimony is more humility than perhaps I showed. And I totally agree with your point on that. And the idea is that we should be humble about our ability to predict the future, say the correlation between deficits, debt, and interest rates. And so I really emphasize the empirical relationship, uh, and I think that's the important one. In terms of good debt and bad debt, I, I was just, that, that's sort of trying to be somewhat of acute framing to suggest that debt that is incurred in the interest of productive investment is very different than debt that, that's incurred for what I would consider wasteful tax cuts. Now, we can have a good argument about that, but I just wanted to be clear about that point. Dr. Blanchard. Thank you. Uh, I thought listening to the three others, that there was indeed a lot of commonality in the sense that I think we would all say that debt per se 
is not good in the long run. That it has, we can disagree about how bad it is, but nobody agree, uh, argued that it was good. There was some difference about the short run. I think three of us believe that if there was a sharp fiscal consolidation, this would lead to a decrease in demand and potentially a recession, which the fact could not have said. John, I think, was more optimistic about the fact that animal spirits triggered by fiscal consolidation could undo the direct effects. I'm very skeptical of this. But beyond this, I think there was agreement. The last point is, I think there was agreement that if that is used for good stuff, public investment, R&D, growth enhancing measures, then there is some justification for using that in that case. The same as would be true for a private firm. I see that my time has expired, Mr. Chairman. Uh, gentleman yields back. I now recognize the other gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Burchett, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, uh, ranking member, I want to thank you for your kind words. Uh, I think about my folks when somebody says something nice about me, and I hope where they are they can see that. I think they'd be very pleased. I thank you, brother, for that. Um, my question today is for the entire panel, and uh, I'm always concerned about China. I get, it's almost genetic. My father actually, after the Second World War, was in the Marine Corps and actually went to China and fought the communists for a short while and um, was, I think, amazed at their abilities that they had and just their, their view of totalitarianism and, and very little regard for human lives, and I think that, that scared him. And with that, I'd like to know, um, China, of course, holds the most of our debt with 1.1 trillion. What are the economic impacts if these foreign countries decide to collect on that debt? I hear that a lot. Put it down on my level. I took first quarter uh, economics for a good reason. I was asked to. So uh, uh, sec second time around, I was told to. So if y'all could, I'd appreciate every one of y'all given your response. Um, I think we have to worry about China at various dimensions. That particular one worries me less than some of the others in the sense that if they were to want to sell the large amount of treasury bills and bonds that they have, they would make a very large capital loss on their holdings. I think that's sufficient uh, uh, reason not to want to do it from their own point of view. So I would not worry very much about the fact that China holds quite a large quantity of uh, government, U.S. government bonds. Um, can I add, if you look at who are the holders of U.S. government bonds abroad, and that's almost half of the debt we've been talking about, uh, they are the exporters to the United States plus offshore banking centers. Um, the way that they get the bonds is by uh, selling output to us. We use dollars to buy it. They accumulate dollar reserves at the Fed, and then they um, convert those into U.S. Treasuries. So as long as China and other exporting nations want to sell their goods to us, they're going to accumulate dollars, and they're going to very rationally convert those to U.S. Treasuries. Uh, I think that any transition uh, out of uh, U.S. government bonds is going to be very slow. China uh, will eventually run a trade uh, deficit. Uh, it's going to become too uh, wealthy. Its incomes are going to be too high to be the low-cost uh, exporter in the world. 
um, their population will buy more imports, and so that will reverse, but it's gonna be very, very gradual, so I agree with Professor Blanchard. This is really not a worry. I, I, since I agree with uh, Blanchard, um, let me just briefly uh, say that uh, if you owe the bank $100, they own you. If you owe the bank a million dollars, you own them. That's kind of what Olivia was saying, and I, I share that view. Yeah, I think we should be uh, concerned because our debt is growing very rapidly. And many people are buying it. They won't always buy it. There is a, there is a risk. And that's not built into the usual forecast, but it, you can't ignore that. It could be a spiral up, and some people would say, no, that's enough. So I think it's a risk. I think the, the China is much more than that. I think they, they seem to be going back away from some of the market principles that made that economy so successful with Deng Xiaoping originally. I think the U.S. needs to be concerned about its, its own economy, its growth, its tax system, et cetera, and uh, continue to stress that uh, philosophy that we've had for many years and has worked. China seems to be going in the wrong direction. That's bad for them, bad for the world as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all very much for being here. Gentleman yields back. Uh, I now recognize the gentleman from New York, Mr. Higgins, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, panelists, for being here. Uh, let's just be clear about a couple of things. First of all, the job creators in the strongest economy in the history of the world, a $21 trillion economy, which is 70% consumption, are the American people. And with higher wages, you have higher demand. With higher demand, you have higher growth. So fiscal policy and tax policy has a major, major impact. Uh, some talk about bad debt, and uh, you know, uh, debt does matter. What is absurd is the hypocrisy of Republican actions that created lots of bad debt that served the interests only of the hyper-rich and not the general good. Two questions. Did the $1.5 trillion over 10 years corporate tax cut produce economic growth beyond that which was projected before the tax cut. It did not, and I would defy anybody to argue the contrary. Did every American household receive four to $9,000 increase in household income that the White House Council of Economic Advisors explicitly said would occur and on a recurring basis because of the tax cut? Absolutely, it did not. Here's who it benefited, and this is why it's bad debt. In fiscal year 2017, FedEx owed more than $1.5 billion in taxes. The next year, after the full year that the tax cut went into effect, <clears throat> it owed nothing. FedEx's effective tax rate went from 34% in 2017 to less than zero, meaning that the federal government owes FedEx a rebate. FedEx spent $2 billion on stock buybacks and dividend increases in 2019, more than double the amount that FedEx paid for buybacks and dividends in 2017 before the tax cut. The FedEx chief executive officer received $16 million in compensation in 2019, and the five top executives below him received compensation averaging $6.2 million in compensation. 
So it seems to me that it's very, very clear after a very short period of time that this tax cut was bad debt. We spent $1.5 trillion and didn't get any measurable return accruing to the public good. Under President Trump, he has accumulated almost $4 trillion in new debt. Uh, that will be by the end of the fiscal year 2020, the final year of his first term. The U.S. budget deficit grew to almost a trillion dollars this year, and we project trillion dollar deficits for the next several years moving forward. Now, it seemed to me a company like FedEx would be promoting good debt for the general purpose. I mean, that's a company, as I understand it, it's a logistics company. They move product <clears throat> by ship, by plane, but a lot by, by, by trucks. And my sense is that the better use of debt would have been $1.5 trillion in infrastructure bill that would have produced economic growth and helped this economy, one point or $21 trillion economy, function much more efficiently. Dr. Bernstein, your thoughts? Yeah, if you, uh, if you look from the first quarter of 2018, which is when the tax law took effect, uh, this is broadening out from the FedEx point just to the broader uh, uh, business uh, community. Companies have spent almost three times as much on dividends and stock buybacks than they have on increased investment. If you actually look at the investment record, it is exhibit A against the argument that the tax cut was going to have these trickle-down effects that would generate uh, faster investment, faster productivity, and then faster income growth. In fact, in the prior two quarters, uh, uh, in business investment has been a negative on GDP, and it is widely agreed upon that this is one of the most conspicuous failures. And that's what I mean, I mean when I talk about debt that I, I view as both wasteful, inequitable, and robbing the Treasury of revenues it needs to make the kinds of investments that we've been talking about uh, earlier. Dr. Blanchard? Whatever the uh, case for a corporate tax uh, rate reduction uh, as boosting investment, I think the evidence so far is that it has not. And therefore, indeed, I think the money would have, could have been spent much better along the lines that you suggested. Gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Woodall, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for holding the, the hearing. If I have learned anything uh, with you over these... Uh, 11 months uh, now, it's that we should stop passing bills that uh, are only supported by one uh, party or the other. Uh, when Mr. Womack was chairman, we spent much of our time uh, debating the merits of the Affordable Care Act and the unmet promises uh, that were there, and now we're, we're debating the, the merits of the, of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. We're not debating the 83 Social Security amendments that raise taxes and cut benefits and uh, solve the uh, system for, for a generation. We're not debating the 96 uh, uh, welfare bill. We're not debating the 97 uh, Medicare amendments. We're not debating the 2005 Medicare Part D, all of those things that we did in partnership. And against that backdrop, I, I ask, here we are with a with a three-to-one ratio. And yes, if uh, Mr. Womack was chairman, we'd have a, a three-to-one ratio going the other way. I want to find what those things are we agree on, because the three of us had an opportunity to serve on a bipartisan, bicameral uh, budget uh, process reform committee last cycle. And I think we, I have heard that broad agreement that we can't keep doing things the way we're, we're doing them, that we can do better. Even if we can keep doing things the way we're doing them, we can uh, do uh, better. Uh, in uh, your testimony, Dr. Bernstein, uh, 
you point out that non-defense discretionary spending isn't the problem. It absolutely positively is not the problem. Now, we'll spend more time in Congress this year debating those issues than we will any of the problem uh, issues, but it's, uh, but it's not the problem. Uh, Dr. Blanchard, uh, uh, you said uh, unless they're used to finance ambitious, incredible public investment plans, uh, deficits uh, should be decreased. I serve on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. I promise you uh, we were supposed to debate ambitious, uh, incredible infrastructure development plans this year, and we haven't. Uh, we've been focused on other uh, uh, smaller uh, issues. So what is the, what is the big-picture item that, that across this panel we can agree on? And, the, and the, the plug I would put in would be a, would be a, a debt-to-GDP target uh, that had uh, enforceable uh, mechanisms. It has to be revenue. It has to be uh, 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 dealing with mandatory spending uh, growth. But that to bring people together, I've got to have a, a common uh, set of, of rules and goals if we all agree we can do better, tell me what that uh, tell me what that that uh, proposal is. You would uh, you would make, Dr. Bernstein? Well, I, I think you said it. I'm not going to give you a number or or a debt rule. What I'm going to say is that I think both sides agree that our infrastructure, our public infrastructure, is really in trouble. And I must say, I don't understand, especially given how low interest rates are, why we're not doing more investment in that. Maybe you can help me understand that. But that would seem to be an area of bipartisan agreement. Now, given that everyone uh, testified that they thought interest rates would remain low for some time uh, to come, I thought we had a sense of urgency to get uh, to work on on uh, taking advantage of low interest rates. I feel less of that sense of urgency listening to uh, listening to, to you all. I, I sometimes think we need that sense of urgency. If interest rates were five, six, seven percent on on federal debt, uh, I promise you we wouldn't be having the debt conversation uh, we're having uh, we're having now. We've made it. Too easy. Uh, Dr. Ray, you've uh, uh, been the target of a lot of uh, conservative uh, attention, uh, but uh, uh, that also makes you uh, someone who can help me bring uh, my colleagues uh, with me to the, uh, to the center. Uh, what's, your, what's your counsel? Well, we have to remember that the debt ratio is a compound term. And if we increase GDP and if we get growth going, the debt ratio will come down in two ways. High growth increases tax revenue tremendously. It reduces some kinds of transfer payments. So total spending goes down. And second, so the deficit is smaller. And second, we're increasing the, the denominator. Uh, GDP is higher. And that's the best way to reduce the debt ratio. And that is typically what has happened in the past. Our debt ratio was 100% in World War II. And then it declined over the whole post-war period until relatively recently when it started going back up again to 80%. I, I was looking through each of your uh, uh, written testimonies, uh, looking for that uh, dramatic change in productivity, uh, women entering the workforce, all of those dramatic factors that led to economic growth over the past 50 years. I didn't see any of those transformative uh, things, which have me worried about, about repeating that. Even at these uh, high consumption, our, our debt is not... Uh, fueling uh, the investment we've talked about. It is fueling uh, consumption. It is fueling transfer payments. Even at these levels, uh, you believe that uh, we can only deal with one side of the equation, which is growing uh, GDP? Lo love to grow GDP. I just don't think it's, I don't think, I, I'm a growth guy. I can't do it by growth alone. I've got to have revenue. I've got to have, uh, I've got to have reductions in, in spending. Do you, do you, you, you disagree with that fundamentally? I don't think we need reductions of spending, no. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Virginia, Mr. Scott, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Bernstein, you mentioned the um, offsetting costs of climate change. What did you mean by that? 
I could cite various studies that project the costs of climate change in terms of destruction of property, uh, destruction of businesses, destruction of homes, but I don't have to cite studies. You can just open the newspaper. Uh, we see much more volatile weather uh, that uh, scientists tell you is related to climate change, uh, droughts, fires, that's what I was referring to. If we're going to contemplate the cost of doing something about that on the budget side, we must net out the cost of not doing something about it, which are, are, are in the hundreds of billions, according to estimates I've seen. Thank you. Um, in terms of fiscal responsibility, they say we should run the budget, run the federal budget like families on their budgets, isn't it true that a fiscally responsible family will routinely go into debt buying a house, buying a car, and sending children to college? What a comparable good debt on the government's behalf. I think the analog analogy that the government is like a family is extremely misguided in this regard. Uh, in fact, it's, it goes the other way. When, when, the, when families are tightening their belts, say in a downturn, uh, the federal government, which has the ability uh, uh, to borrow, and again, particularly at low rates, should be loosening their belts. So the idea that the federal government would contract when the uh, private sector is contracting is a recipe for austerity, uh, more specifically for more pain for the people least insulated from the pain, the most economically vulnerable families. Uh, but families do go into debt for houses. That's not considered fiscally irresponsible. No, I mean, I think that's a good example of the kinds of debt distinctions that I'm making. I mean, people will go into debt for a college education, for a housing. It, get, it, all, uh, you know, it really gets back to this idea that growth rate versus the interest rate. And, and that applies to families, too. Why does a college education often make sense to people? Uh, because, uh, 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 I say a college loan often makes sense to people because you're, you're becoming indebted in the interest of improving your earning power. And so that's the kind of calculation that I think uh, families make and, and governments ought to as well. It's been pointed out that there was no noticeable difference in trajectory in unemployment rate and jobs created after the $1.5 trillion tax cut, an economic plan about twice as expensive as the Obama uh, stimulus package, which had a profound change in trajectory in ter terms of jobs and unemployment rate. Um, why did the Trump, why was the Trump initiative so ineffective? Well, first of all, I've noticed many members citing $1.5 trillion cost of the, you know, we, the CBO says 1.9, and that, that, that I think is, is more accurate. I think it's a question of whether you add the interest in, I think is a question. The answer, my answer to your question actually comes to predictions that not just myself, but were widely made before the Trump tax cuts, that it would not have anything like the investment effects that were projected. And the reason why many of us thought that was because the cost of capital was already so low and that firms were sitting on large piles of retained earnings. So there was no reason to think that, as an economist would say, there was a large elasticity to tap there. That is, uh, firms had uh, access to all the investment capital they needed. We made it a bunch cheaper by cutting taxes. And guess what? They didn't respond on the investment side. Uh, once again, supply side, trickle down, fairy dust didn't work. You mentioned um that held, foreign held debt went from 2% to 30% of GDP. What's, what's the problem with that? 
Well, the problem with that is that uh, more of our national income uh, leaks out to uh, lenders from abroad. So. Uh, if, uh, if you're concerned about uh, one of the costs of increasing debt, meaning that uh, income that we produce in this country ends up in the pockets of lenders from other countries, you know, that's a germane concern at 30%, not so much at 2%. And interest rates are set on, an, we, we talk about crowd out, and we used to be concerned about the federal deficit. Um, is our interest rates set on a domestic basis or an international basis? I would say very much on an international basis, uh, but I would also stress that the Federal Reserve or the central bank, and not just our central bank, are very much in the mix. And as I point out in my testimony, if you average out over the last decade, the, uh, the central uh, bank's interest rate has been 0.6% on average. So they're in the mix as well. And if the international rate went up, an international rate over which we have very little control, what, what would happen? Well, that's, a, uh, that's one of the reasons why I argue deficits matter, because uh, we are uh, exposed with a larger stock of debt to that kind of uh, problem. Gentleman's time has expired. Now recognize the gentleman from Oklahoma, Mr. Hearn, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm thankful today in the House Budget Committee that we're actually talking about taxpayer debt for the first time. I've been here a little over one year, and uh, it's the first time we've talked about it. It's, it's encouraging. But I'm also uh, discouraged to hear that, you know, that we don't think that uh, deficits and debts matter when we talk about the modern monetary theory and that uh, countries that can print their own money can just take care of their issues and we don't really have a responsibility. Uh, last week we had the opportunity to talk to the Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell sitting in your seat and I asked him specifically about the modern monetary theory and his, uh, he stated, quote, the idea that countries that borrow in their own currency can't get into trouble is just wrong. And the idea that debt does not matter is also wrong, end quote. Additionally, we have more than 40 leading economists were asked whether they agree with the underlying tenets of modern monetary theory by the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. 100% of the respondents disagreed or strongly disagreed with the economic principle. I don't believe that members of Congress are naive enough to believe in MMT as a way of servicing our debt. I believe that this is just a way to justify their multi-trillion dollar wish list. They simply cannot face up to the reality that their free proposals like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, the Green Housing Deal are not at all free. When asked about how to pay for these programs, they can't give a straight answer. Some just argue that we will. Uh, some settle on the convenient MMT. This is not realistic. The Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and the Green Housing Deal are not realistic. and Our kids and grandkids will pay the price tag. By pretending that we can afford these outrageous proposals, we're indebting our future generations to pay for them all. We've all talked about uh, the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act of being just so destroying of our economy. Would you all agree that we're, this year we'll have the highest revenues in the history of this country? Not nearly as a share of GDP, which in my view is the right way to but measure we'll, it. But we'll, from a pure dollar standpoint, we'll have the highest revenues ever in the history of this country. Is that correct? It's a yes or no. I mean, it's not hard. You guys are economists, all doctorates, the last time I checked. That statement is probably true every quarter uh, in our history, uh, except when we're in, in recession. The relevant measure is as a share of GDP. I mean, this is, a, this is not a partisan statement. This is a CBO view. And as a share of GDP, we're collecting 16.3% of revenues in FY19. That's a historical low point. So, so you know what? I've been here one year. What I, I would tell you that no matter what the revenue is, that we'll figure out how to spend it. I mean, would you agree with that as well? Okay, good. We got a yes or no on that one for sure. Yes, we will figure out how to spend it. There is no sense of fiscal accountability 
in this house. And so to say that it's wrong to put a little bit of money back into people's pocket, because I will tell you back in the hinterland, when you get out of the beltway, they don't believe we can control any kind of spending. And to put money back in their pocket is not wrong because they don't just go bury it in their backyard contrary to what you'd like to make everybody believe. They go spend it in their economies, their local economies, which pay taxes to fund their schools, to fund their roads, to fund everything else in their area, not dependent upon the federal government. Those are just facts. You can agree or disagree, but those are facts. You know, as we go forward here, I like what you said, Mr. Bernstein, about we have good debt and bad debt. In fact, I introduced the Pro-Growth Budgeting Act uh, two weeks ago. It will never see the light of day because contrary to popular belief, most people here don't believe that you actually invest using debt. And when we talk to the ordinary people in the world, the people that are not in this room, except for our guests, appreciate our guests being here, uh, but those of us that are here talking at each other, when you talk about debt, you have some reasonable expectation of paying it back. That, that does not occur in Congress. You, you borrow money and you never pay it back. It's only been paid back four times in four years in a row, 97, 8, 9, and 2000, in 2001 a little bit. But since then, we've been running deficits every year, which means we're not paying down any debt. So uh, it, we have a different definition of debt in this world up here. So I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to look at that and give me your thoughts because it says if we spend a dollar, borrow a dollar, it's being borrowed and spent to actually grow the economy. I would encourage you to look at it. It's got a lot of reviews. But a lot of people signed on to it. Not members of Congress, but a lot of people signed on to it. So anyway, I'd like to take a look at that. You know, as we go forward here, um, I'd like to talk about the Green New Deal, uh, Mr. Ray. If it's not $93 trillion or $83 trillion, what, what is the number that we're talking about? Because it's getting used a lot around here. I, I know you guys, you, you see this and you hear about it and it's in the press, but in our hearings, every hearing, every committee, 22 committees, has some component of a conversation of Green New Deal. Can you give me just your best guesstimate of what that's going to cost? Net-net. I get it, you know, you're going to save money and all that stuff, Mr. Taylor and others, but what is that number? As I said, it depends on what you include in the Green New Deal, and it could be about 5% of GDP. So only $100 billion a year? Is that what you're saying? Is that roughly? Uh, wow. Trillion, trillion dollars a year. Trillion dollars a year. So trillion versus nine trillion. That's a big difference. I mean, because sure. up until now, I've not really heard many people argue the 9.3 trillion a year uh, number yes. that. So I have looked at the 93 trillion um, number, which is a, an outlier, and they don't count a reduction of spending on, um, say, the destructive. Activities. So, so you're saying that the 8.3 trillion is what we would save versus spending only a net trillion. That's man, I, I don't know. That's a pretty good return. Well, as I said, that was an outlier. Yeah. Other okay. estimates are nowhere near that number. Obviously, we we don't have 20 minutes to ask questions, right. Mr. Chairman. I, I thank you for your. I always indulgence. enjoy giving you more time. <laughs> no, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I really appreciate. It. Thank All you, right. witnesses, for being here. Gentlemen's time has expired. Now, recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. Kana, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you to the distinguished panel. I want to welcome Professor Taylor, who's from the uh, Bay Area. I uh, taught as a lecturer in economics at Stanford for four years. And while I'm more with Professor Krugman than I am with you, Professor Taylor, I will say that I had students in my class who wore a T-shirt with your face on it and the Taylor rule. So uh, you certainly were a popular professor. Uh, I want to ask uh, the panel 
about our strategy that allowed us to win the Cold War. I think we forget that post-Sputnik, our government did great things. We created satellites. We remain the only country that has ever sent someone to the moon. We invented the internet. We invented navigation systems. And I would argue that there were two comparative advantages to American policy. One, we had a policy of talent acquisition from around the world. If you were creative, smart, entrepreneurial, we wanted you here. And two, we had almost 3% of our GDP in fundamental science and technology investment. And so I'd like to ask the panel, putting aside partisanship, if we want to lead the 21st century against China, would you recommend as a growth strategy that we invest in smart infrastructure, smart broadband, smart new technologies, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, new fields of biology? And would you recommend that we have a policy of talent acquisition? Uh, Dr. Bernstein or Dr. Taylor, either. So, uh, <clears throat> thank you, fellow professor. Lecturer, uh, I, never got, I never would be <laughs> tenured at Stanford. <laughs> so, uh, I think you're correct that what we did is, in technology is amazing. The Apollo 11 movie is just a fantastic thing to watch. I encourage everybody to do that. It's the private sector, public sector working together, and I think that's uh, admirable. I think we need to find out more ways to do that. I think it's partly um, working with the private sector. It's encouraged them. You know the private sector very well. And it's not bashing them. It's encouraging them because it's very much part of our, of our society and why we're successful. I do think the question of uh, crowding out of uh, discretionary spending, which you're talking about, is, not, is, is other kinds of spending. I can see these projections of spending as a share of GDP. They're just going through the roof. And that means that other things, which haven't even come up yet in this hearing, are growing very rapidly because we know that funding for the things you're talking about are not going. So I think the focus should be, what are you going to do to control the growth of those items? Because they are crowding out the things that you want and we want. That's what's happening. And, and it's not really benefiting people very much. So it, that's where I would look. What's, why is that spending path exploding? It's exploding. What can you do about that? What can this budget committee do about it? It's partly the targets that uh, Mr. Woodall suggested. What, what should the, maybe 42% of GDP, like we had average over 50 years, is okay. What's wrong with that? And then ha and have a, a deliberative process of how do you get to that? So I would suggest having an overall view would be very important. Dr. Bernstein, do you want to? Very quickly, I would say that uh, I wouldn't characterize our spending uh, in, in the areas that uh, John did as exploding. I would characterize them as completely predictable given uh, pressures from de uh, demographics and, and health care costs. And I do think there are savings to be had there in health care reform. To answer your, let me just give you one granular answer to your question. And I know, uh, Congressman, this is, the, I think this will appeal to you because I know that you think about this in a granular way. So green technology wasn't on your list, but I'm sure it was implicit. And um, th think about battery storage. Now, I happen to know that, I pay attention to this, countries are now trying to figure out, kind of competing, fighting, for who's going to dominate the global market when it comes to storing energy in, uh, in battery technology. And that's a fight that we're not even in. And I think it's extremely consistent with uh, your view. Right. If I could ask one more question, quick question of the panel. Putting aside your view on the wealth tax, I, I ran around across the statistic that 87% of American wealth is in the United States, 87%. Only 2% 
is in the Cayman Islands, 1.5% in Britain, 13% overseas. And so people who say, okay, if you have a tax on wealth, people are going to leave, remind me of my friends who said if Donald Trump was going to win pr the presidency, they would leave America. They didn't, because this is the best place to live in the world. And don't you think this is the best place still to invest in the world? That's a rhetorical question. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Yes, I do, and I think you make a, a, an interesting point that hasn't really been brought to, to bear on the wealth. I mean, I think it is true uh, that uh, given the mobility of uh, wealth and, and uh, proclivities for avoidance and evasion, we do need a structure that holds hands with other countries to, uh, to monitor that, but your point is well taken. A gentleman yields back. I now recognize the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Mr. Muser, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for being here with us. Um, so the federal government does have a serious spending problem, as do, as do state governments, truly uh, trying to be all things to all people. Um, even just hearing today, it sounds like he wants the government to get into the battery business. Um, we, um, we don't so much have a, a revenue problem. Uh, according to CBO projections, the federal government's revenue will total $46 trillion over the next 10 years. Revenues will grow by 63%, about a 6% range. Very healthy. That's, that's, uh, and, and last year, our revenues grew about 7%, and that's after the, uh, uh, the Tax uh, Act, which had extraordinary um, results. So, but however, uh, mandatory spending over the next 10 years is projected to increase by 3.1 trillion uh, to 5.3 trillion, a total of 36.5 trillion over over a 10-year period, almost as much as it will be total as much as as uh, as revenues. Um, so, without even discretionary, which will grow by, by um, uh, 14 trillion dollars, we. Um, uh, we, we've already used up, just in mandatory spending, uh, all, all the uh, revenue growth. So, so clearly, uh, we, uh, we have a, uh, a spending problem, uh, and that would put us in the neighborhood of a $10 trillion, you know, 36 plus 14, uh, a deficit or debt uh, in addition to where we currently are. So, um, and this would, would lead to 79% of G GDP today to 144% in, uh, within a 10-year period. So the way I look at it is we have two budgets. We have discretionary and we have mandatory uh, budgets. Discretionary spending is up $70 billion in 2018. Revenues, however, are also up $70 billion. So just looking at that one budget, uh, we, we have a balanced budget. Our problem is... Uh, as stated, with mandatory spending. Um, so what we have, though, is many proposals to add to our mandatory spending, uh, such as Medicare for All, which has a $32 trillion estimate cost over the next 10 years. So Dr. Taylor, I'll ask you, I'll start with you. In your opinion, how do you think the government would have to finance this program, uh, and how high would taxes have to be raised to meet such a large level of additional mandatory spending. I think if it's just an addition, it's not going to work. You have to do the other direction. The, the, the simulations, the calculations, as you say, this mandatory spending is going very rapidly. Um, it's got to be controlled. You don't have to reduce, reduce it. You have to slow the growth compared to growth of GDP. 
there's proposals out to do that. I think there'll be more, more discussion of those proposals would be very worthwhile. Much, much of the discussions go into the opposite direction, uh, Green New Deal, et cetera. Medicare for all, I haven't seen those where they're really saving money. I know there's some people that argued it would be, but, but there really has to be some uh, attention given to this. I would, I, the projections at least are explosions of spending. It's largely, largely because of the so-called entitlement right. program. Has there ever been a country that you can think of in history that has spent its way into prosperity and increased taxes in order to pay for more government-run programs? I think the, the history is quite clear that uh, a solid fiscal policy where you're, you're balancing the budget as close as possible over the cycle, you have deficits in recessions and slumps, you have even surpluses sometimes and good times, it works pretty well, it's worked well for the United States. When we got off of that, it has not worked very well. So that should be the goal, we're a long way for that now, but some of the reforms that would go in that direction. Uh, I would actually encourage uh, you to use CBO. Why doesn't CBO have a, have a model that answers the questions about the short run, the long run? Much of the debates and the focus is, oh, you can't re even reduce the growth of spending because it's gonna be a hit to the economy. I don't believe that's the case. I think you can, and reasonable calculations and models show that it's a benefit. So I, I would encourage that part, maybe deals with some of the partisanship that we're seeing already. Yes, agreed. I um, uh, want to ask you this then. The tax cuts that took place, they're being debated, they're saying they, they were not helpful and clearly we have an unbelievably booming economy and they're being compared to the shovel-ready stimulus program from 10 years ago, which uh, was, uh, the data shows was relatively useless um, and a waste. Uh, can you just comment on, on the historical results that come from tax cuts, putting money in people's pockets and gaining the multiplier effect versus the federal government thinks it knows best with people's money and uh, on, on projects that um, are so-called shovel-ready and are, 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 are presented based upon um, uh, very often who knows who, and, and which, which, is, which is also a symptom of a socialist government. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've written a lot on the stimulus packages, uh, both in 2008 and, and later. Uh, stimulus packages with President Obama. I don't think they had the impact that some people do. I think it actually was negative in many respects. Uh, the, the states didn't spend the money as they thought they would. They pocketed the money. Uh, a lot of it was transfers. It, it really didn't work very well. I mean, I have lots of studies that show that's the case. I also am on the record for showing and arguing that the 2017 tax reduction reform was beneficial, and it's not just the 30 five to 21%, it's a lower rate on small businesses, it's expensing of investment. It's the kind of things that we know, at least in our theories, and I think it's true in reality, that more investment, more tools, better tools, better things that workers have to work with, they're gonna be more productive and their wages will go. That's the idea, and that's what's built into the CBO long-term calculations that I referred to before. So I, I don't think economics has changed. I think it's, it's basically working quite well. We can see anomalies like the low interest rates that we've seen, but negative interest rates around the world. But basic economic forces are, are still working very well, and I think we need to emphasize those now. I apologize for going over my time, Mr. Chairman. I yield. Uh, gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from uh, California, Mr. Peters, for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses for being here. I, I, um, 
I want to. Um, I keep hearing about the Green New Deal. It's it's a straw man. Fewer than half the Democrats have sponsored it. It's already it's already been killed in the Senate. So I don't think we should spend a lot of time talking about it. I mean, there are component parts of it that have to deal with climate that I th certainly think would be worth talking about. But it's become just the straw man, and it seems to end the discussion and not lead to much nuance. Um, the um, with respect to nuance, um, I get the sense that um, that there's kind of a consensus that it, it might be appropriate to debt finance the kinds of th things that would um, generate a return. So that might be infrastructure, a training, investment, education for people who could add to their earning potential, uh, basic research. Um, of course, we did not develop GPS through the government. We did not develop the internet, but we, we led the research that allowed the private sector to invest in those things. And I think um, it, it certainly was good for the country and good for the United States to be the locus of that, I think, as well as I think you're your other statement implied. But I do want to talk a little bit about bad debt. And I suspect that bad debt, and maybe Mr. Bernstein, you could answer this, might be financing or borrowing money to pay your ongoing expenses, whether it's particularly the ones that are non-cyclical. So if you think about the social benefit programs, I mean, is, is this something that we should be concerned about? Is, is it appropriate? Is that what you mean by bad debt? You know, it isn't. <laughs> and uh, the What is an example of bad debt then? Well, I, I think that, so I, I keep raising uh, the tax cuts from my perspective. We, we don't have to right. rehearse that. There's another one, though, that I haven't had a chance to talk about, and it gets to something you were just raising, which is, you know, the fact that other countries insure their full populations for about 10 or 12 percent of their GDP, and we do so for 18 percent of our GDP. So call that 6 to 8 percent of GDP that is, um, you know, basically waste in the delivery system of the way we provide health care. So I think we could slow the cost of health care growth. Getting back to your first question, though, I'd want to I'd do so in a way that protects vulnerable people. Um, okay, do you, but so you really, so would you think it's appropriate for us to debt finance the cost of health care? Oh, well, we very much do so, of course. And yeah, I mean, I think these are, are, are I mean, whether it's health care or retirement security through Social Security, I mean, these are, are clearly... Uh, essential public goods, right. and we're not raising enough revenue uh, to pay for them. So, yeah, I, I, I consider that to be to be reasonable debt in this climate. Oh, okay. I haven't found an answer yet, I don't think. But I'll ask Mr. Taylor. Um, you uh, advocate for the um, 2017 tax cut. Should we be cutting taxes more? I think we should be looking for tax reform that promotes more economic growth. So the, it also the, deals with uh, other, other problems, but I think it's still an, an important issue for the United States. The knock on that bill was that, not that it didn't help some people, but it, that it helped a lot of people who didn't need help. Uh, and that by, if you give uh, money back to people who already have swollen bank accounts and, and have a lot of savings, it's not going to generate the kind of economic activity. And in fact, uh, all the economists surveyed by the, U, by the University of Chicago, I think 38 of them, um, agreed that it wouldn't pay for itself. And um, I think even Mr. McConnell said, uh, admitted that, it had, that we had to generate 4% growth in the economy to pay for those tax cuts. My, so my question, I guess is rhetorical, is where does this end? And if our revenues are at a low point uh, compared to GDP, isn't it really time to, to think about how to get more revenue in and maybe should wealthy people pay more, uh, the ones who have uh, plenty, plenty of uh, earnings to part with? 
I think it's time to, uh, if there's well, something- Maybe more directly, what would you do as a, for American tax policy? What would be your next step to make sure we have- Consider more ways to reform. There was very little done on the personal side. There could be done more on that. There, there's the tax uh, cuts are, are not permanent anyway. They're gonna disappear. They, again, based on the basic economic theory, you want to have uh, more encouragement of investment because that's where more productivity comes from. Right. More productivity leads to higher wages and higher incomes. It's just the, sort of the most basic thing in economics. You don't want to discourage businesses from investing. You don't want, we want to encourage them because that will make the, their workers more productive in the system as it has for many, many years. But if you acknowledge we should well. tax people at some level, how would yes, I, as course. a policymaker, determine what that level should be? I think the, the first thing is what do you want your spending level to be? And there's, very, there's not a discussion about that. And then you have a way to finance that. I think there's, there's reasons that sometimes- Assume, I, assume I wanted my spending level to be what it is today, which is a trillion dollars more than we're taking in. What would I do to raise I that I think the projections of spending are that it's going, I don't 28% of GDP is the projections. Well, I, I, so, so that's not gonna work. Assume, so you have to do assume it's have 20% to. and right now I'm taking in 16%. What should I do to tax policy to raise that money? I think the, the tax cut that's uh, in place will raise more. This notion that it's, it's not paying for itself is not really true if you look over the long term. It's true over maybe a couple years or three years, but it's not true over the longer term. Growth right. increases. Uh, you don't have to be... Uh, I, I'm out of time, nice. but maybe I'd ask you in writing. I, like if, I, if I say 20% is a historical level at which we um, spend, invest, um, and we're, ta we're taxing well, yeah, I think at 16%. The budget committee, the Congress has to decide what's the right level. You're gonna, there's more. Well, I'm not a professor at Stanford. That's why I, I asked you a question <laughs> about how, how I would answer that question. I mean, we all would, we're all a, a people of good faith who want to figure out what the right answer is. But, you know, all, I never hear, I never hear from people, you know, what the, what the appropriate way to set that number is. And it strikes me that some people are being undertaxed, and they're not the, not the people who are paying payroll taxes. So I, I guess we'll have to continue this discussion later, but I would really like to know the answer to that question. Can I submit a memo on that to you? Absolutely, you may. Uh, uh, gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Crenshaw, for five minutes. Oh, I'm sorry, no, the gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Johnson, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I, I'm, I'm really enjoying these. Uh, thanks to the witnesses, by the way, for being here. I'm enjoying these conversations uh, today. Uh, you know, we're talking about the unsustainability of the federal debt, um, and yet this committee that is responsible for producing a budget to address our spending has not done one. Uh, so Mr. Chairman, I, I'm, I'm gonna submit to you that uh, we gotta get back on track on this committee and, and produce a budget. That's our primary responsibility. You know, the federal debt is an unsustainable trajectory. We all know that. The current debt burden on every American is $70,000. Within three decades, CBO says that it's gonna be uh, around $248,000 per American or almost $1 million for a family of four. Um, so mandatory spending, including interest payments on the debt, is projected to increase from 3.1 trillion in fiscal year 19 to 5.3 trillion in fiscal year 29. This is a 2.2 trillion dollar 
uh, or 71% increase. So, Mr. Taylor, do you believe we should be focused on stabilizing current important programs such as Social Security and Medicare, which we know those are part of the mandatory spending that's driving the debt, right? So that we can make sure that they are preserved and strengthened or should we focus on expanding these programs and creating a bunch of new programs on top of them? I think the, the most important thing is to stabilize in the sense of have them not growing faster than GDP. And that requires reform. And that requires projections. And I think they will work better in that case. I think there could be more focus on this committee, other committees of Congress, on finding ways to reform those programs. That's what I would focus on. They are crowding out other things that have been mentioned already in this room. And then once that is determined, that's the, that's the job of our society, our democracy to determine that, then figure out about the financing. And there are reasons why sometimes you have deficits and sometimes you have surpluses. Economists have wrote about that all the time. But I think the main thing is what, is, what should be the, the spending priorities and I believe now that it's, it's the so-called entitlements are growing too rapidly. Um, many people have thought that the same, so figure a way to re reform that. There are proposals out there, and that's, that's the way I would go about it. Yeah, and, and use, that, uh, use that ugly word, entitlements, because I can tell you the people where I, where I live, where I represent, my 80-something-year-old mother before she passed away, they hate that word entitlements because they invested in those programs. They view, they view those programs as responsibilities Absolutely. of the federal government, and, and we've let them down uh, by not doing budgets, by not managing the spending so that we protect those programs. You know, interest payments on the debt are already high uh, and are projected to grow. This year, interest on the debt is projected to be $390 billion. By 29, it, uh, it will more than double to $807 billion. Under CBO's longer-range forecast, interest on the debt will rise to 29% of federal revenue by 2049. So again, Mr. Taylor, are you concerned that an ever-rising federal debt and its associated interest payments will crowd out other important federal spending priorities, such as defense, research, health care, and meeting our obligations that American people have paid into? Absolutely. I am concerned. That's why I focused in my testimony of the costs of doing that. I think it's a cost to the economy. It's, CBO agrees it's a long-term cost. I think it's also a short-term cost and would encourage CBO to adjust their analysis to capture that as well. But it, it's, it's fundamental. It's really the most important thing that I look at the budget. I don't know why it's going in the direction it's going. Need to change it. Need to make it make it more sense from an economic perspective. Okay, um, in my last thirty seconds, you know, some would say that modern monetary theory simply says that uh, Americans shouldn't worry about uh, how much we spend because the dollar is the is the um, currency of the of the world, and because America owns the dollar, we just print it when we want it. So my my question to you is. Do, do you worry that implementing this kind of philosophy, uh, uh, the uh, MMT, could cause a loss of confidence in U.S. financial markets? Yeah, yeah, I'm worried about it for a number of reasons. It's really going back to policies that we know hasn't, haven't worked in the U.S. I gave my example of the 1970s, but it's going back to countries which have not been successful. It's high inflation. I would like to see at least run, somebody run through particular proposals that are along these lines 
with some models, with the CBO models, so there can be some at least discussion about it. But right now, it seems to me it's going back to policies which we know in history have not worked. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. The gentleman's time has expired. Now recognize the gentlewoman from Illinois, Ms. Chikowski, for five minutes. Thank you so much. I wanted to go back to climate for a minute. I think it's perhaps the greatest challenge facing the, uh, the 21st century. Um, we have just, it's estimated, 11 years to cut emissions by 45 percent, have to achieve um, carbon neutrality by 2050 to stop temperatures from rising above 1.5 degree centigrade, but um, creating a, a clean by but I see by but creating a, a clean economy will require sustained government investment. We've heard you talk about that, and uh, in a Roosevelt Institute report, economists J. W. Mason and Mark Park argue that the government can't afford uh, to finance um, decarbonization plans of at least 5% of GDP, as you mentioned, um, Dr. Ray, um, without causing substantial economic disruption. So Mr. Bernstein and whoever else wants to comment on this, given our current e economic conditions of persistently low interest rates, as you had mentioned before, and low inflation rates, would you agree that it is sound fiscal policy for the government to invest in a clean economy? And let me also ask, um, would you also agree that the economic and social costs of not addressing climate changes, uh, change are far greater than any risk to incurring additional debt? I'll be brief. I'd like to hear my other panelists sure. comment on this. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, as I've stated throughout the hearing today, uh, we can't make this a one-sided equation. As you correctly point out, Congresswoman, we have to factor in the cost of the, uh, of the environmental damage from doing nothing. And if you simply look at your front page, those costs seem to be growing by the month. Uh, and I, I guess my argument would be we can't afford not to do this. And to talk about this purely as uh, an expense on businesses or something like that is to uh, miss both the opportunity for game-changing investments where uh, uh, I believe our country should play a, a role, and uh, again, the costs of, of not doing uh, enough. Yes, Dr. Blanchard. There's a, a marvelous cartoon. It takes place in 2050. The world has become inhab inhabitable, but there's an old man who talks to a young man, and he says, yes, it is inhabitable, but look, we've reduced the debt. I think that's a very deep <laughs> bad choice. Uh, it is clear that we need to do something about global warming, that the cost will be high. The question, I think, is not whether it should be done. It should be done. The question is how much should be financed for taxation, additional taxation, and how much should be financed by debt. I don't think there's a simple zero-one answer to that. Some of it can be financed by debt, but to a large extent, what we do to fight uh, global warming has very large social returns very low financial returns to the state. And therefore, if it's all financed by debt, it will complicate life later for the state. So I think it's a mix, right? There's no question that we should be doing it and partly finance it by tax and partly financing by debt. The part which would be financed by debt would be called, I think, by Jared, uh, good debt. This is debt uh -huh, to improve uh -huh, the future. Uh -huh. Dr. Ray? Yeah, uh, can I add, look, According to the scientists, and I'm not one of those, we have the technical know-how, okay? So the question is, can we release the resources 
from current uses, plus put unemployed resources to work to tackle climate change? And I think the answer is clearly yes. If it's 5% of GDP and use that as a measure of the resources we need, this is absolutely doable. Think about what we did in World War II. We had to move 50% of the nation's production to fight the war. We did it. The debt ratio went to 100%. The deficit reached as high as 25%. We managed to keep inflation below 10% at the peak, and most of the years much below that. We can, if necessary, I completely agree with uh, Professor Blanchard, we may find we're going to need a tax increase, or we may find that we need to postpone some consumption, to ask the workers to make a sacrifice for 10 years uh, in order to enact what we need to do to turn around this trajectory of annihilation. And we'll reward you later. That's what we did in World War II. We gave benefits, uh, Social Security, retirement, uh, health care. All those things were promised at the end of the war. Workers got them. How did we come out of that experience with a 100% debt ratio, the golden age of US capitalism? That's what we got from that. Thank you. I yield back. Uh, gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Crenshaw, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I, I want to clarify some things, because there's been some creative use uh, of semantics about the debt. So over and over again, we hear that we aren't taking enough money from the American people and the businesses that they create. If we let them keep their money, it's apparently classified as bad debt for the government, which is quite the take. Uh, Dr. Bernstein, as you stated, apparently Americans spending more of their money because of the tax cuts is not useful investment. Never mind that GDP growth rates have increased since the tax cuts, and according to the Fed and CBO, it has been largely due to consumer spending and some business investment. But I guess that isn't useful. Because there is this belief, and it is a belief, that only the government can possibly make smart investments. And this is an odd thought, this notion that our debt is a result of not taking enough of our constituents' money, as opposed to us spending it on unsustainable entitlement programs, which, by the way, as a share of GDP, is the only category that is changing radically. Federal revenue, in absolute terms, has continued to increase increased by 4% last year. And as a share of GDP, it dropped, as Dr. Bernstein has noted, only slightly recently. But it's on track, as this graph notes, it's on track to be back at historical levels within just a couple of years. So if we don't cherry pick the data, we see that we aren't that far from average federal revenue. What has happened in the last couple of years? The fastest growing wages have been in the bottom quintile of earners. And it's not even close Child tax credits have doubled, which matters to low-income earners. Businesses are hiring, which matters to all people, not just the 1%. 80% of taxpayers are paying less this year. And we all know that it is the wealthy earners in high-tax states who ended up paying more. Let's stop pretending otherwise. And this notion that we are regressive is interesting. Dr. Bernstein, how does our country compare to others as it pertains, others in the OECD, as it pertains to progressivity of the tax code? Where does America stand? Uh, pretty low, uh, not only in terms of progressivity, but also in terms of uh, the amount of tax collection of the federal government. Okay, well, the OECD data completely disagrees. In fact, they have us at number okay. one. So that's including state and local. You can't do anything about state and local. It includes all sir. taxes? 
Yeah, you can't do anything so, about state so and local. So we're number one. I mean, Federal taxes were made far more regressive by the tax cut. I mean, that's not a debate. As a country, we are number one, and it's not even close. Ireland is second number place. One it's in not what? even close. Progressivity of the tax code. Okay, Dr. Taylor, you said the tax cuts have been effective. And I'll give you this data, Dr. Bernstein, if you'd like, to add context to the discussion. Dr. Taylor, you said the tax cuts have been effective. Uh, a lot of others disagree with you, but how so? How have they been effective? Well, first of all, they have had uh, increase in growth since they were passed. Growth has been higher in 2017 and 2018. Towards the end of 2017, it was passed. It was passed relatively quickly. Nobody think it would, would happen, but I think it's, it's been a beneficial thing. I think long run, you'll see more effects. There's a slowdown now in the economy. It could be due to other things. It could be due to this growing debt. But I think ultimately, it's, it's beneficial. And that's what theories show, the models show, the data show. Thank you. And look, it doesn't actually seem like any of you are advocating for unlimited spending. That, that's, not the, that's not what I'm taking here. And I do believe, Dr. Bernstein, you said in your statement that we would be better off actually decreasing our deficits somewhat, not zeroing them out. That would be radical, according to you. But you want to get them on a more sustainable path. That, that's what I remember reading from, from your statement. And so, Dr. Bernstein, what, here's what I want to ask you. What is the main driver of debt? Okay, you obviously you do not want to touch discretionary spending, perhaps even increase it. But even if you had your way and you eliminated the recent tax cuts, it, it still wouldn't pay for the vast growth in, in entitlement programs. So I want to know, can we agree on this? Do we agree that Social Security and Medicare programs need to be addressed? And, and do we have solutions for that that don't involve overtaxing my generation in order to increase benefits for your generation? And, yeah, and Dr. Taylor, if you yeah, could also answer this after Dr. Bernstein. No, I think there's some agreement there. I think that where we disagree is on the revenue side. So you and your colleagues keep citing the, you know, these highest revenue collections ever because you're talking billions and trillions. As I point out in my testimony. Okay. I understand we disagree on that, but I really, the, yeah. the main driver of debt, we do agree is entitlements, right? We do agree uh, yes. on that. Yes. Uh, so yeah. I want to get a solution for that. So the solution. So, so drive so the, the discussion towards so that. So I've tried to emphasize. So there's two solutions to that. One is we need to collect more revenues and do so more progressively. And two, we need to slow the growth of healthcare spending. Okay. And Dr. Taylor, if the chairman would uh, allow, it, if Dr. Taylor would like to answer that as well. No, I think it's it's clear that the driver is the uh, you use the word entitlement spending. That's okay with me. Is uh, this this growth, which is quite rapid, and a reform of those programs, a reform, I think, which will make them work better is what we need, and it's going to slow their growth, and that's what's key. I'd love to talk about that for hours, but only if the chairman would indulge me. Thank you, <laughs> no, Chairman. We'd all have to do that. Uh, gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. Panetta, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here today, as well as your expertise uh, on this uh, very, very uh, important, crucial subject. Uh, I believe that you've testified too. Um, I apologize for not being here earlier, and so I probably will ask some questions that have already been asked, so I, uh, let me just make that clear. But thank you very much for being here. Um, you know, we are here, as you know, to re-examine the economic costs of our debt. And obviously, we won't, before we do that, though, we want to take to the stock level of debt we have and the trajectory of our deficits and our debt. Uh, as you know, we got $16 trillion in publicly held debt and $6 trillion in intergovernmental debt, basically close to we just passed. The debt surpassed $23 trillion, and it's growing faster than our GDP. Uh, and Dr. Blanchard, you testified that deficits running at 5% of GDP are a cause for concern. 
Debt as a share of GDP is projected to rise from 79% in fiscal year 2019, 95% by fiscal year 2029, and if we keep on going at this rate, it's going to be 144% by 2049. Now, last week, in the very same, at the very same table that you gentlemen are sitting at, Federal Reserve Chairman, uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman said that the level of debt that we currently are going at is just completely unsustainable. And I believe he's right. But regardless of that level and which level is healthy, there are clear dangers, I think we understand, of allowing our debt to continue to grow at this rate. And so clearly your testimony today is very important, not just to examine those risks, but to also look forward to some sort of solutions to responsible and smart budgeting. Uh, if I may, Dr. Blanchard, you're closest to me. Uh, do you have an opinion as to what a healthy debt-to-GDP ratio is? And does 100% concern you? If not, what about that 144% number I threw out there? I believe that there is no magic number and that that could increase to a much higher level before starting or triggering a crisis in the markets. This being said, there is no particular reason to want to do it because it can be done. And therefore, other things equal, I think that lower levels of debt than the ones we have are desirable. Uh, and that uh, if we can get there without uh, creating problems with the economy itself by slowing down public demand, uh, I think we should try to get there. Understood. Understood. Now, I, I'm I wasn't here for your testimony, but I read your testimony. And you said that the deficit shouldn't keep us from making smart investments, clearly. But if we run deficits without considering the debt at all, we clearly run some risk, correct? Yes, when you, and you want to issue debt only for good reasons. One may be to sustain, basically, the demand and maintain output at full employment, or for public investment, which makes sense. If you don't do this, either of the two, then you should definitely worry about that. If you do this, I worry less about an increase in debt if I can justify it on the basis of your macro considerations or public investment. Understood. Okay, thank you, thank you. And, and Dr. Bernstein, you were, um, in your testimony uh, that I read, you talked about the 2017 tax bill, obviously, and uh, the drain that it had on revenue. Is there uh, anywhere else that you would suggest we look to to increase revenue? Yes, uh, I, I think uh, it's an important question. Um, because so much of market income and market wealth has accumulated at the top of the scale, um, I think that some of the current debates about uh, taxing wealth are uh, relevant and uh, worth uh, thinking more about. Um, now, whether we're, we're actually talking about a wealth tax is, is a different question. So closing the step-up basis loophole would make a lot of sense to me. Um, could, you, could you explain that briefly? Sure. So uh, when a uh, wealthy uh, person transfers a capital gain to an heir, uh, the value or the basis of that, uh, of that capital is stepped up, uh, meaning it's, it's, it's raised to the current market rate, and that gain uh, is completely untaxed. So this is a way in which uh, asset accumulation is, uh, it goes untaxed. And the more you put uh, 
The more you put uh, wealth or income or any sort of uh, accumulation in a tax category that goes untaxed, the more people are going to figure out that's precisely the kind of, of income they have a lot of. So I'm not necessarily endorsing some of the, the more far out ideas about new, new, new wealth taxes. I'm saying we should tighten up what we have. We should bring capital gains rate closer to, uh, to income rates. We should bring the, give the estate tax some bite. And we should definitely fund the IRS to close some of the tax avoidance uh, gap that's cost us literally hundreds of billions per year. Great. Thank you. I yield back my time. Thanks again, gentlemen. Gentlemen's time has expired. Now recognize the ranking member for 10 minutes. And we're into the lunch hour, um, which is never a good thing for <laughs> the two of us who have uh, a few minutes of uh, questions. Um, first of all, thanks to the witnesses here today. Uh, I'm going to come full circle and just ask each of them. Uh, we we kind of started this way. I, I want to go back because there's been a lot said. Um, does debt matter? From the perspective of the United States taxpayer who may be watching this hearing or hearing about it, to each of my panelists today, does the federal debt matter? Dr. Bunchard. That absolutely matters. Uh, Dr. Ray. <laughs> that, was, that was a but, but I didn't give you no, time. We may come back to the but. but. Uh, yes, but probably not in the way you're implying. You, you said but and kept going, and I wouldn't let Dr. Blanchard do it. Yes. Yes. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. My dad always said... Don't go into debt. He's a very successful businessman. Don't go into debt uh, for things that are not an appreciating asset. Uh, pretty sage advice, don't you think? Yes. Uh, do I get any pushback from the... No, you said my butt. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, and and I, I think he's right. And by the way, he operates a business today and has no debt uh, and has, a, has an extremely healthy uh, business. There have been some discussions here today about whether the family household budget that most of our constituents have a context on versus the federal budget and whether they should operate similarly when it re regards debt. Now, the household budget does not have to provide for the national defense. It's not in their constitution. It's in our constitution. It's in the constitution that we're responsible for up here. But um, in terms of going into debt, uh, for purposes of uh, investment, uh, growth in the economy, those kinds of things. The principles, though, between the household and the federal budget are still similar in nature. Would you not agree? I would not agree. Uh, the uh, public debt, the government debt, plays a macro-stabilization role that individual debt does not. So when the government decreases its debt or has a large surplus, this has an adverse effect on the economy, which it has to take into account. This is irrelevant to you or me or any uh, household. Uh, Dr. Ray, I saw a negative response from you. Right, because when you're looking at it from the point of view of the individual in the private sector, whether household or firm, at some point, yes, they need to repay their debt. The private sector taken as a whole never repays all of the debt. It grows over time in the same way that the federal government's debt grows over time. It's been growing since 1791. It's been growing as a, a relative to GDP since 1791. It will continue to grow. So will the private sector's total debt. So you can't look at it from the point of view of the individual in the private okay. sector. Look at the private sector as a whole. Their debt grows over time, too. 
All right, Dr. Bernstein. Just as I said earlier, I think this idea that when the uh, household is tightening their belt, the government actually needs to go in the other direction. So I'm afraid I disagree as well. Dr. Taylor. Uh, just to be sure, I think these so-called automatic stabilizers are good. It's been the economy's in a boom. Revenues increase and spending increases, and I think in a slump goes the other way. Well, I guess here, here's where I'm going with it, um, and, and that is that uh, unlike the federal government for the American household, there are consequences for uh, going into too much debt uh, to the extent where you do not have the capacity to repay. Uh, and there are many examples of that. Student loan debt, I think, is a, a, a real good poster child for it because there's a lot of people that went into student loan debt with a purpose of improving their earnings potential when, in fact, they didn't improve their earnings potential. In fact, a quarter of that student loan debt is not even uh, did not even lead to a college degree. So I, th I think it was purpose-defeating in that regard. But there are consequences for my constituents for going into too much debt and not having the capacity to repay as opposed to the, to the U.S. government. Which leads me to this question. Uh, if we agree that, that debt does matter, uh, and it's just a, a discussion about the type of debt, bad debt versus good debt, and if the uh, premise that the government should have the capacity uh, to repay, and I'm not talking about just minimum payment due, just the net interest on the debt, but I mean start whacking away at, at the, uh, the long-term structural challenges. If, if that is true, then um, this, uh, the, the lack of the congressional process that this guy and I worked on, in addition to Mr. Woodall, uh, to develop a budget of the United States government and to be able to uh, put before the American people what our fiscal condition is and to begin to make those prioritized decisions, discretionary versus non-discretionary, or the mandatory side, and remember those mandatory programs are on autopilot, so unless the Congress acts, they continue to go completely unchecked. And it becomes a demographic challenge for the country that are moving those uh, costs higher, higher, in addition to healthcare spending that Dr. Bernstein, you talked about. So um, do you, um, would you agree with me that part of the problem that Congress has is it, it is not honoring the process that is designed to be able to put the spotlight on the fiscal condition of our country in such a way that we can begin to make those established priorities. And I, again, not at the risk of using the word poster child again, let me remind you, yesterday we passed a continuing resolution. We are seven, almost eight weeks into the fiscal year. We don't have a budget, and we push the spending of the country again to the 20th of December, to Christmas, and we'll probably do it again, and maybe two or three more times, um, is the lack of the um, uh, uh, execution of our process or a better process contributing to the problems that we're facing today. Dr. Blanchard. I would not think of myself as an expert on these issues, uh, but yes, from where I stand at a distance, it looks like the congressional budget process is not ideal and could be substantially improved. Dr. Ray? Or does the process matter? Look, capacity to repay. I'm not sure what that would mean for a federal government that is an ongoing um, uh, concern 
that has only repaid its debt one time, 1837, followed by our first depression, we do not have to repay the debt. What we have to do is make the interest payments. That's okay. what we need to do. All right, well, all right, so let me hit pause here a minute and just focus on interest payments uh, for just a moment. Today, uh, as evidenced by one of the, uh, a couple of our members have indicated that the net interest on the debt this year with very low interest rates is gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion, which is more than half of what we spend on our constitutional challenge to provide for the common defense of the country. Um, and, and there's been the term crowding out used many times here today. We are crowding out the investments that you gentlemen are suggesting that we continue to make to grow our, grow our economy, help uh, vulnerable Americans. The things that we would normally spend that money on, we're spending on the net interest on the debt. That's money that could be being spent elsewhere, which I think makes my point that deficits and debt do matter because it is crowding out the available money that we have to be able to effectively fund the discretionary budget of the U.S. government. Well, I your mean, turn. you put that constraint on yourselves, and I understand your political uh, dilemma here. Interest payments, I think all three of us agree, are a very inefficient kind of spending. First, half of it's going abroad. Okay, and the other half is going into the United States, but it doesn't tend to go where you want it to go. It doesn't tend to lead to economic growth. So I'm not advocating trying to ramp up interest payments. Crowding out theory, there are two approaches, one loanable funds, the other is ISLM. The, the evidence just does not show that there's crowding out. Now, it may crowd out your spending because you put constraints on uh, the, the budget, budgeting process. It doesn't crowd out in the real world by raising interest rates and reducing investment. All that government spending goes somewhere into the economy and it creates uh, net income for the private sector, which should encourage investment rather than discouraging investment. So, so the constraints that you suggest that we put on ourselves are only there for, for one reason, and that is not to explode this deficit and debt situation even further exacerbate the situation as we currently have, which most people would agree is already beyond any capacity for us to be able to repay, and it's just gonna lead to further complications in taxes for future generations. Dr. Bernstein, real quickly, uh, a thought from you, and then well, I'll come Well, just on the process point, because what you said resonates with me. I'm gonna be uh, straight with you about that, about the broken process. But the, I immediately went back to, I believe it was 2011, and the balanced budget, uh, the balanced budget uh, agreement that you know created this so-called super committee, I view that as being uh, you know just a huge process failure. So that was I, 2011. Yeah, 2011. Not I, our joint select committee. No, no, no. I'm just oh, saying. Okay. Right. I say that 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 I think the problems go deeper than process. I agree with you. The process is broken, but I think there are fundamental differences about the kinds of investments that we are arguing about today, good versus bad. About the the amount of revenues that we need to collect. And I feel like before we can have a reasonable process, we probably have to talk more about those differences. Dr. Taylor. So I think going back to regular order would be tremendous. Budgets come from the president, the budget committees go through it, the appropriations, and you've got a budget by October 1st. It would just be uh, so clear to people compared to what's happening now. No one, this is a democracy, supposed, people are supposed to be somewhat informed. It would improve the process greatly. I would encourage you to try to do that. Okay, and I've just got one final question. 
and it's related to our process because our committee, uh, which I think did extraordinary work, we, we came up a little bit short, but not because we didn't really work hard at it because we spent a year doing it. Uh, but the, the one thing that I think we kind of rallied behind was regarding debt is some kind of a target. We've talked about it already today, debt to GDP, which I believe, I've given up hope that we're going to balance the books of the federal government. It's certainly not in the time frame I'm going to be here. But at some point in time, should this country not have a reasonable target of debt to GDP, pick the number. I don't know if it's 42, the historical average, or if it's 65, or use whatever that number is, but some kind of a target so that we can at least begin to somewhat uh, uh, conduct ourselves as um, uh, people who can constrain the, the absolute growth of federal government, which can go out of sight if you don't, real quickly, uh, from left to right. I think that the issue is that we really do not have a good sense of what the debt target is. And choosing a number comes with dangers uh, of trying to do something which may not be quite the right thing. So I'm, I'm with you in spirit. I would have a very hard time deciding what the number should be. Dr. Ray. Absolutely agree. I can't see any, um, I think you should focus on the things that are important. Okay, employment, rising income, economic growth, rising productivity, meeting the challenges that face us in the future. Dr. Bernstein. Yeah, I, I would urge you to think about that much more dynamically. Imagine we had a debt target in, uh, in World War II uh, and we didn't gear up to fight that existential battle. I'm sure you would, you would be opposed to that. So I, I don't yeah. think targets are, are, are a good idea. Okay, Dr. Taylor. I think, I think targets are a good idea with emergency clauses to deal with this. Amen. I yield back my time. Thanks for allowing me to go over. Absolutely. And congratulations on Louisville being number two. Thank you. By the way. Um, we're, we're loaded. People need to look out for us. Um, well, uh, I yield myself 10 minutes. Uh, thanks again to all the witnesses for being here. And uh, I think it has been a valuable discussion. I didn't have much economics uh, education <clears throat> on my way through school. So I'm using my chairmanship to become educated. And this, uh, this hearing helped. When Mr. Cooper earlier talked about nuances in some of these issues, and I, I fully agree that most everything we do up here has significant nuance, and uh, we don't recognize that. So I, I'm interested, we're talking, we talk about the 2017 tax cut. When people say it's a $1.9 trillion tax cut, it actually wasn't. It was a $5 trillion tax cut. Just that we're offsetting revenues that made it a $1.9 trillion uh, net tax cut. So, and one of the biggest factors on the revenue side was the SALT taxes, eliminating a state and local tax deduction. There were, there were many others. And so, in terms of thinking about if we were to review the tax cut with, a, an, with a, an aim of keeping the parts that did benefit people and doing away with the part that had no societal benefit, I think that's an important thing, distinction to make. We, there, when, when Mr. Smith talks about his residence, yeah, if you get a $100 tax cut and you're making $40,000 a year or something less than that, that's a significant amount. When you're my classmate in college, Stephen Schwarzman, and you talk about cutting his tax rate by 2.6% uh, at the top, uh, that doesn't seem to so, uh, serve any great societal benefits. So I think we, we often have to think about taxes like that. And, I also think about when we talk about cutting mandatory spending. Uh, whatever we spend on Social Security, 
Whatever, every Social Security benefit check that goes out every month, uh, how much of that do you estimate goes back into the economy? Vast majority. Virtually all of it, right? And whatever we spend on Medicare and Medicaid goes back into the economy. So our four point, whatever it is, $4.5 trillion spending at the federal level, with the exception of probably some of the defense budget and the, and the interest on the debt, all is part of GDP. So when we're talking about cutting federal spending, we are cutting GDP at the same time. And, and I think we lose sight of that sometimes, like all of a sudden we just cut this and the economy keeps roaring on. That's not necessarily the case. Humana uh, is based in my district. Humana is um, about a, right now, about a $60 billion a year company. 80% of their revenue is managing government healthcare programs. So you cut healthcare there, you're cutting a huge part of my economy in, in, in my district. And so again, these things are all very, very nuanced. Is there any difference in your opinion, anybody can answer this, uh, a tax cut that goes to a, million, uh, to a middle income individual versus their social security check? in terms of macroeconomic Im impact. Is there any difference? No, I think the likelihood is that they'll both be spent. Right, so in one case you're dropping <clears throat> federal revenues, the other one's just writing a check, but they have the same impact on, on the economy. And one of the things that uh, I love about uh, your statement, and it came up when, when Dr. Taylor talked about um, looking at models from CBO, and I, I saw a little smirk on your face. I may have, may have misread it, but when you talk about empirical, empirical eco economics, and, and that's where I've, since I've been on this committee, which is now, this is my 11th year, uh, is something that I've always been very interested in. I remember several years ago when, when uh, Tim Geithner was Secretary of the Treasury and came before the committee, and uh, at the time Paul Ryan was chairman of the committee and he put up these charts showing spending on mandatory spending and so forth, and, and the debt going out 50 years. So I asked Secretary Geithner, how realistic do you think projections going over 50 years are? And he said, I don't think going anything, anything longer than five years is reliable. And that's one of the things that I've been obsessed with is that we <clears throat> live in a world that is changing more rapidly than anyone can possibly have forecast and making projection, projections as to what's gonna happen in the economy. Um, <clears throat> I saw this morning there was a release of a story that um, some, a company that Bill Gates funded has come up with a process using artificial intelligence and solar panels that will increase, allows you to create heat at levels sufficient to do concrete and so forth which is responsible for about 7% of global uh, carbon emissions. So it seems to me that the possibilities of technology and innovation change, radically changing some of our future needs and maybe changing either, maybe increasing some of our needs is something that uh, it's gonna be hard for us to project. I always say Congress at its optimum efficiency moves at 10 miles an hour. This year it's two miles an hour but the world's moving at 100, and I don't know how we make policy to accommodate that. But one of the things, Dr. Blanchard, that I, 
I've been obsessed with is artificial intelligence. And we know artificial intelligence is going to have its productive uses, as it apparently has with this company, but it's also going to have disruptive uses in the economy. For instance, eliminating an awful lot of jobs. I heard one estimate that this came from one of the top people at IBM who said that within the next three years alone, artificial intelligence would either eliminate or significantly change 120 million jobs around the world. And that, that's going to increase. So given that, we, know, we don't know the extent of disruption that's going to happen, but we know there's going to be a lot of disruption happening. What would you say that means for our priorities of spending in, that, in order to try to accommodate the changes we know will come, but we don't know to what extent? I think you know, AI has all kinds of implications. One of them is that uh, the low productivity growth that we have might increase over time because we're really discovering ways of, uh, of doing things differently. In which case, it would be good news for the economy. It would probably increase interest rates. Uh, that's fine. Uh, the, uh, I think the other dimension, which is worrying people very much, is that there might not be enough jobs. And as you know, this is an issue which has come with technological progress for at least two centuries. In the past, it has always worked out okay in the sense that new jobs have been created. I think this time we're less sure. It may not, in which case we really have to think about everything we can do uh, to help the people who may lose their jobs and not find one. Uh, this leads to issues of uh, universal basic income, uh, basically money given to people who really cannot find jobs. It uh, means uh, thinking again about the earned income tax credit and making it much more generous than it, uh, than it is. I think we have to be ready for these contingencies. They may cost money. Um, I'm, I'm going to not ask any more questions, <clears throat> but you all have sat here a long time and listened to a lot, so I'd like to give each of you a minute to respond to, in, to anything you heard, if, you, if there's something you'd like to comment on that you heard that you'd like to either defend yourself or to make another point. Dr. Taylor, you want to start? So I think, uh, I think three things. Uh, tax reform, if possible, should be revenue neutral. So that's the idea of this uh, assault changes. You had uh, restrictions on the state and local tax and, and you had a reduction in the rates. So maybe that went too far for California or some states, but that's the concept is, is useful. I think it's not correct to say that every reduction in government purchases reduces GDP. If it's planned, if it's understood, if it's the context is there, if there's a social safety net which is reasonable, I think it can benefit. And that's what my simulations tried to show. You can actually have a higher GDP growth. And finally, the impact of artificial intelligence on jobs, I think the main lesson is let, let the private economy work. It's amazing what it can do. And that's why the history that uh, Lilia Blanchard referred to is so promising. And uh, the worst thing we can do is get in the way of uh, what the market will do. Of course, you need to have uh, a, a social safety net, which is which is working. But don't uh, don't really make a mess of what otherwise could be a tremendous boom to productivity, not only in the United States but globally. Thank you, Dr. Bernstein. I guess two points. One is, or maybe a point and a question. One is that um, we really do have a, a revenue problem, and I I I, I'm, I guess the one thing I would argue uh, is that it it really doesn't make sense to cite revenue collections in the billions and hundreds of billions and argue that we're in some uniquely favorable space. 
uh, as a percentage of GDP, and I go through this in my, in my, in my testimony, if you can bear reading through it, I, I, I tried to do a careful job. Uh, the, uh, the, the 2017 tax cut really broke down connective tissue between a growing economy and ample revenues. And I believe that it's, it's essential that we fix that if we're going to ad address this problem. I guess the question I have is, often when I come up here and talk about these issues, I hear much more reasonable conversation, much more <laughs> agreement, much more fundamental understanding of the importance of key investments in public goods and yet, at the other end of the process, we just don't see it. I, I, and and I've been a creature of the swamp here for decades, and I'm still scratching my head as to why uh, uh, well-intentioned people, not everybody's well-intentioned, but a lot of people I heard from today on both sides are, uh, can't uh, get together, especially given the favorable rates that we've all been stressing, and make some of these investments. Uh, well, I want to respond to that because if you just let Yarmouth and me fix all this, give us give us thirty minutes and a sandwich. Are you announcing that you're running for? Uh, no, no, no. But we've had this conversation a lot. Right. Uh, I just want to say. Yeah, uh, so there were several references to MMT, and they all seem to equate it to printing money. That is not MMT. We describe the way the government actually spends. I think what they have in mind is something much closer to quantitative easing, in which uh, the, uh, the Fed spent three, four trillion dollars buying assets, essentially by crediting bank accounts with reserves. That is nothing like what uh, MMT is recommending. We are asking you to look at uh, government debt uh, deficits in a different way, to take account of sectoral balances, if you're going to reduce the budget deficit, we need to know which one of those other two sectoral balances is going to change. Are we going to be reducing the private sector's surplus? Uh, are we going to make the private sector run deficits? Are we going to somehow get the trading partners to decide not to sell stuff to the United States? Something has to happen. You can't just raise the tax rate and think that you're going to balance the budget or reduce government spending and think you're going to balance the budget because those, one of those other two sectors, or both of them, has to change what they're doing. Uh, let me just, and cutting health costs is cutting GDP. Cutting uh, government spending is reducing the injection of government spending into the economy. Reducing the amount of um, uh, debt that is issued is also reducing the net financial assets that are being accumulated by the private sector. That's going to have some kind of consequences uh, for the private sector. So we need to look at both sides of the equation of government spending, and, but also of government debt, which is held as an asset, the safest asset in the world. The world wants more of it. You know, so why are we so worried about giving the world what they want? The, the, the last thing on the um, uh, robots taking away all our jobs, as uh, Professor Blanchard said, this has been going on for 200 years. It's usually a good thing. Uh, I think it probably will continue to be a good thing, but uh, what should uh, the government do about this? We do need training. We do need uh, education uh, because robots are pretty good at taking away the jobs of the lower skilled and lower educated workers. There's some way off from taking away our jobs. Uh, maybe someday that will happen, but we need to worry about the, the people at the bottom end uh, that will be replaced probably pretty quickly. We need to educate them. I don't like the idea of um, a basic income guarantee or just telling people, look, sorry, 
in the modern economy, there's nothing that you can do? No, we have to find jobs for these people, and we need to train them for jobs. Uh, I thank you for that. And, uh, uh, well, I'll go to Dr. Blanchard first. Looking at my notes, mm -hmm. uh, I have two points. The first one is a nerdy one, which is that if you look at interest rates and debt, it's true that interest rates have decreased while debt was increasing. To conclude from this that therefore there is no effect of debt on interest rates would be wrong. This would be mixing correlation and causality. I think what has happened is many other factors have led to a decrease in interest rates, which have nothing to do with debt. It may well be that debt still has a positive effect on rates. It just is hard to see because of all the other things which have happened. So I think we have to continue to assume that debt in the long run has some effect on interest rates. I think it would be dangerous to do something else. The other is, is more general in relate to number of discussions which took place, which is uh, I do not think that mandatory spending uh, can be uh, decreased substantially. I think there are some savings to be made, but there are also more demands because of aging and various uh, dimensions of change. Uh, I suspect, I very strongly suspect that the way to take care of deficits and reduce them over time is for increasing taxes. I have no doubt that this is the case. Thank you. Just just one comment. I, uh, Watson apparently, IBM's Watson can now apparently do 70% of what lawyers do with greater reliability, and they can read CAT scans and MRIs more accurately than um, than radiologists. And when I was talking to my accountant, uh, my Kentucky CPAs, when they were in town not too long ago, they said that's the number one thing they talk about: the existential threat that uh, artificial intelligence is to. CPA, so it's, it's not just truck drivers. Anyway, <clears throat> thank you all very much. Once again, it's been a stimulating discussion, and we appreciate your contributions very much. With no further business, this hearing's adjourned.